and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we're releasing another bonus episode. Recently, I was interviewing Alyssa Grubner for our podcast, Boundless Body Radio, in an episode that's going to be coming out soon. Alyssa is the host of the Carnivore Stories podcast, and so she has been doing a carnivorous diet for the last year to help her recover her health from lots of health issues and also a long period of being vegetarian and vegan. We're going to hear that story today. But it occurred to me during that episode that she mentioned that it wasn't just one single story of a vegetarian or a vegan that left that way of eating because they needed to recover their health. It was a video that she watched that was a compilation of lots of different stories. As we finished the episode, I kind of reflected upon that and thought how powerful that would be and then realized that we, during our course of doing Boundless Body Radio, have interviewed several people who have had that situation and we could also create something equally powerful with all of the stories that we've already heard from people who are in that situation. So that's what I am attempting to do with this episode is to make a really powerful collection of all the people who we have interviewed who have left a vegetarian or vegan background for reasons of health or for reasons of learning that it's not really best for the planet or even ethically better for the planet. So I, I, I want to put that all together today. I also wanted to make sure that we were tying in not just the stories of people who had to go through that journey, but also some of the science. So I've included clips from different doctors and researchers and authors that can help explain some of the nuance and the science behind these things. So it's not just um, anecdote, if you will. It's also the science behind it. So we've included that as well. I realized that this episode is really just not going to be for everybody. It's going to be quite lengthy. Um, and this may not apply to you at all. And I'm okay with that. I thought a lot about that. I've thought about splitting this up into multiple episodes and releasing it at different times, but I just really want to get this episode out there. I really hope that people understand the facts about plant-based diets and the vegan diet in particular, and this movement towards plant-based diets, being healthy for people, being healthy for the planet, being the most ethical thing to do. Once people have the facts, I think they can make wise decisions on the way that they can choose to eat. We certainly are proponents of a carnivore diet and lots of our guests Yes, due to their experience in the in the plant-based world are also carnivore. But this is not a pro-carnivore episode. This is people that are leaving, you know, whatever level of, of again, plant-based vegetarianism, veganism, and finding that they needed to heal themselves by bringing animal foods back into the diet. So my hope for this episode is that people can listen to this with a really open mind. And I really hope that it, it helps people, again, understand the facts and make wise decisions about how they feed themselves. And and really, we, we want to extend the bridge and say that we appreciate the, the reasons that people turn to plant-based diets. They're normally generally very noble. They're for the great cause of, you know, again, improving planetary health of their own health. And so we just want to say that what, however anybody eats is not really important to us. We just want people to be healthy and happy and be making the very best decisions. So we're going to get started here with a longer clip. I found that this clip was one of the more powerful ones. It was very emotional. I decided to leave the entire story in this episode, even though it is quite lengthy, because it is so powerful. So this is a clip taken from episode 365 of Boundless Body Radio with James Lehman. He was pretty hardcore into vegetarianism and veganism for a long time, as you will hear in this clip. Um, I went away to boarding school when I was 15 years old, and that was a really formative thing for me. First time I ever saw snow when I went to Canada at 15. Amazing experience. And um, 
you know, we were fed, uh, we were fed by another person. It wasn't you going home and making your own little snack yourself coming home from school or your mother or father feeding you with someone else and you had to rely. So I ended up eating a lot healthier during my little, um, boarding school and beginning of university experience. But I ended up dating a young lady uh, at the time who was vegetarian and, you know, more props to her Casey, because back in the, the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, there wasn't a lot of options in the grocery store. Um, and she's since gone on to be a vet- veterinarian. So you can tell her, her feelings towards animals. Um, so, you know, I had to impress a girl and I'll, I'll come right out and say it, man. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make things as easy as possible and not as awkward as, as, as could be if, and at the time I was thinking I'm probably doing the right thing. You know, I'm, I'm probably, you know, there was a lot of stuff out there on the dangers of red meat and it can cause cancer. And if you eat high fat and if you eat these things, you're going to get heart disease. And I thought, well, vegetarian sounds good. It's just easier. We're cooking. We were in university together. Cooking was simpler. Grocery shopping was easier. And I, I made the switch to a vegetarian diet and that stayed with me for decades Decades, decades, literally. Wow. What, yeah. what kind of animal products stayed in the diet on your vegetarian diet? Great question, Casey. I actually was thinking about this prior to our chat and I was like, you know, I kept in eggs. She was a, she actually was a big fan of eggs and, and, and I kept in dairy. And I think that saw me through because uh, apart from that, there was a lot of processed stuff, a lot of chips, a lot of, you know, microwave meals, a lot of seed oil laden stuff. Um, you know, you, you know, university, what it was like, man, ramen noodles and yeah. you're two and two in the morning eating at a, at a cart outside after you've had a few beers and the, the diet was just not good. And it stayed with me for mm-hmm. sure for, for quite a long time. And what would you say would be the proportion of animal foods to vegetable foods? When you say eggs, is this like a few a week, a few a day, dairy products like daily, weekly? Certainly I was a sucker for cheese and I'm back to being one. I, I, I love it and it's my weakness. Um, uh, eggs a couple of times a week, I would have said a couple of times a week when we could get them usually on the weekends, you know, when we had a little bit more time to cook the eggs and clean up afterwards. Um, usually in university time, we'd be waking up scrambling to get on and cereal down the gullet and off you go to school. If you even ate breakfast back then, cause you're running to class, but yeah. Those were the main things, eggs and cheese, I think, that I kept in. Okay, gotcha. And and it's so difficult to tell, you know, the nutritional deficiencies when they start to come on because you're right. Like if somebody goes, you know, full vegan, it seems to be, and, and we'll get into this when we talk about your story into veganism, but it seems to be year four, year five, you start to really see some of those things kind of build up. But you're right, like just including some eggs, some dairy products, you know, some fish. I know fish got added back into your diet when you went back to the island. That can really yes. help even just a little bit. Like having something once a week, once a month is, is is so much better than trying to cut all of them out the whole time. Absolutely. And you're absolutely correct. When I returned to Bermuda after my university career, um, being from an island and being surrounded by this beautiful salt water and access to the most unbelievable fish selection that you could imagine from yellowfin, bluefin tuna to local snappers and you name it. And I I knew growing up, I had eaten so many fish, I added the fish back in there. And it definitely did hold me over whilst I was a a vegetarian, for sure, having access to even if the most minute amounts kept me going, for sure kept me going while I was vegetarian. So while you were in this vegetarian phase, did you notice anything going awry with your health at that point? Um, I sure did Casey. And, and, you know, they say hindsight is 2020. Um, looking back, I started to, I started to put on a lot of weight because I was eating a lot of breads and pasta to, to reach satiety. I was just 
mashing back <laughs> so many crackers and chips and pastas dishes with tomato sauce and breads all the time. I was a bread fiend. Um, and I started to notice when I was in my 30s, I would get a lot of uh, headaches. And then I started coming down with a lot of uh, pain in my, for your men out there, pain in the groin, which they thought was uh, something called epididymitis. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I haven't. Uh, a recurring infection of the testicles in men and wow. where they swell and are so painful. And they, I was given, I count how, can't count how many times I went to the emergency room with unbelievable pain there. And they gave me... Um, Ciproflaxin. I must have been floxed by the time I was. And for those that don't know what that is, when you, you get symptoms from taking too much of those uh, fluoroquinolone uh, antibiotics, and it really wrecks your gut. Um, wow. But I should have I should have noticed these things, but I, I didn't. I just thought they were one offs. And then I, st- I one day I got um, frozen shoulder, <laughs> which I now know can be actually due to um, oxalotoxicity, which we'll talk about later on. Yeah. And that was unbelievable. But uh, just Memory starting to go a little bit, headaches, uh, as I to- told you about those epididymitis um, symptoms, um, putting on weight like crazy. I wasn't healthy. I was, I, I could tell my anxiety levels were coming up then too and stress. So yeah, should have noticed. Yeah, but, but it's so pervasive. Everybody experiences so many of those things in their day to day. So it's so easy to just write it off. Oh, I'm just aging. This is what it's like. I've got the dad bod. I'm adding, you know, the extra weight. And since everybody out there is doing the same thing, you almost don't, you, you kind of like write it off as like, this is normal. It's not normal. It's just that we're, we're so poor on our diet that it's become average. It's become normalized. This is it. This is it. I mean, I looked, I looked around, everyone else was doing similar, if not worse things that I thought than me at the time. Um, and I, I thought, well, this just must be me getting old. This just must be what happens. And, uh, I kept trucking along and little did I know I was, I was building up for something worse. Wow. So crazy. Okay. So as we set that stage, I just want to ask you at that time, did you consciously think that the diet was a net benefit to you? Did you think you were doing the right thing or was it just something like you started with these habits and they just kind of continued along or were you like very deliberately following this diet and thinking that it was really helping you? You know, that's a good question, Casey. I have to look back and think because in my boarding school days when I told you I was eating meat and a lot of it, I was, you know, I was a good athlete. I was rowing. I was on crew at the time, which, you know, you got to be pretty in good shape. Yeah. I did triathlon, triathlons, played basketball. Um, and then I made the switch to vegetarianism and, you know, being in university, I, I think I didn't tell your listeners, but I ended up separating my shoulder, which kind of kiboshed my um, basketball career pretty, pretty quickly. And I, st- I stopped exercising a lot and it, it, one, because I was you know busy with university and, you know, out partying and doing these fun things. But when I came back to Bermuda and I was in my working career, um, you know, you're in your nine to five and I stopped and, but I, I honestly thought that the diet would be my foil against lack of ex- exercise because I was thinking, yeah, this is supposed to be a pretty healthy way to eat. I'm not eating a lot of the red meat and chicken and other things that are supposed to be quote unquote bad for you. You know, all the healthy fats, I'm eliminating those. Um, so i um, got my margarine, got my gluten-free breads and pasta and just kept cramming them down my throat. Wow. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So let's talk about your transition from vegetarianism to more strict veganism. When did that start? To, <laughs> yeah, this is going to be great. When, when did that start to become a part of your consciousness as something that you wanted to do? And what were the motives? 
Yeah. So I um, met my current wife and um, we, you know, being a vegetarian and, and living together, we decided that we were, and God bless her. She said, we're going to, we're going to be healthier. She, she could see that I was, had been putting on weight and it was stressed out and going to get back into exercise. She actually got me started on some yoga and things like that. She's an unbelievably uh, fit young lady and still is. And she started to kind of adapt to my way of living as, as one do one does as couples, or at least ask questions. Oh, yo, do you eat this, eat this? And she said, well, let's, um, she started looking into veganism and we started watching a lot of the films centered around vegan eating and how it would be better for the planet and how it's better for your health and, um, you know, game changers and, and not forks over knives and things like that. And I have to admit to you in my hand and my heart, Casey, we, we, we bought into it hook, line, and sinker. We did because we thought, all right, we're already sort of vegetarian-ish and we can do this. It's for our health. Um, you know, a lot of the scenes they painted with the way, the way the animals were treated, we we said, okay, we don't we don't like that. Let's do this for our health. Let's do it for the planet. We can do this. And um, she actually went out and was, was and got certified as the fully trained professional plant-based chef. So I was eating wonderful, wonderful plant-based wow. meals at home, not just microwave store-bought stuff. She was, this was whole foods plant-based all the way. Yeah. So this is not yeah. the same kind of quality of diet as you were doing before on vegetarianism. Now this is like, you're, you're doing it as well as one could do it. I would say a hundred percent. Yes. As well as we could do it. And, you know, some of the dogma we can talk about later coming from the vegan side was that, oh, you got sick because you must have not been doing the diet right. That That's the only reason. I, I can tell people hand on my heart that we were doing it right. I mean, we were eliminated most of the bad oils. We were using avocado and olive oil. We were had cut down a lot on the sugars, albeit that we did eat some sweet stuff, you know, plant-based um, foods, including nuts, you know, the almond stuff and keto style treats that didn't have any dairy. Uh, but our meals were home cooked, whole foods, plant based, you know, restaurant quality dinners because she was training to become her, her, her to, excuse me, to get her certifications in that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so every diet has pros and cons. Some things improve, some things some things don't improve. What were some of the benefits of going from vegetarianism to veganism, especially initially? Yeah, initially, I, I can tell you. I mean, I started to lose weight, which I, was a goal of mine. Um, I started to have more energy, more um, um, more ideal to exercise, got in the exercise. And that was partly because I was feeling better and losing weight. Um, I felt like not only was I doing the right thing, like I said, for the planet. So, you know, my, my brain was going, this is not only good for everyone else, this is good for you. I was, my mood was good. My energy levels were good and things got better for a while. They did, honestly, they got better. And looking back at it now, it's because I eliminated all the, a lot of the toxic, heavy sugar laden breads and pastas and, and, you know, processed foods, seed oils and the like out of my diet. But yeah, I felt good for a while yeah. for sure. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And that's such an interesting part of that message is when you know that whatever you're doing is helping yourself, but it's also helping the planet. That is really, really powerful. That's an amazing message to think that I can make an impact. I, I have so much respect for that. I think that's wonderful. And I think a lot of us, you know, would, would believe that because it makes so much sense on paper. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And 
we were proud of it. We, um, you know, when we went out to eat uh, the seldom times that we did, we would let people know. And at the time, veganism was still on the cusp of just coming out and or not coming out, but just being more popular, let's say. And uh, it was uh, it was a point of pride for the both of us, I have to say. It really was. Yeah, that's very interesting. I saw today that Dr. Chafee sent out a message, Dr. Anthony Chafee, known as the plant-free MD. He's got this great podcast. He put out a post um, that showed a screenshot of him reaching out to a vegan to see if this person wouldn't mind coming on his show to answer some questions about the diet. And I saw that, and I immediately responded in the comments and said, I, I would be willing to bet a large sum of money that you never hear back from this person. And I, I don't exactly know what it is. I've personally tried to reach out to several, even, you know, not to host on the show, but even like on Twitter, like, can we like, can I ask you some questions? I'm really curious. I would love to get your feedback and I get blocked and, and it doesn't seem like I, I can't, I have a really difficult time getting answers from people who are currently practicing. So the best way I guess I can ask this question is to ask people who were formerly vegan and, and, veg, and vegetarian, but primarily vegan. Could, could you and I have had a conversation about the difference in our diets at that time when you were really into veganism? For myself, I would say yes, absolutely. You could. Abs I could. Cool. I could. Now, with that being said, during my vegan days, I also, like you, when the, you know, I start, first started out on Instagram and, and Facebook and those things as, as a vegan, I noticed that certain folks you could not have that conversation with. And I didn't really understand why, because my thing is we're all trying to be as healthy as, or at least I think we're all hoping for the best health we can as we get older. And if I have a belief that this way of eating is going to make me healthier and I have some tips to give you and I feel that you can also have some tips to give me, well, let's share ideas. Let's come together and, and talk this out. But people, the dogma that was pervasive was really not only strange, but just, you know, sort of off-putting to me at some points. Um, not that I thought the diet was wrong, but I could see it, especially, you know, well, you're not doing it right, as I mentioned earlier. And, and oh, wow, you're still including certain things. You should be a fruitarian. That's the way to go. Or, you know, it's... It's really, it's really sad when that happens. So I feel for you if you reached out to people and they don't get back to you. That's that's not a good thing. Yeah, I I agree with you, and I think we, I, I think you're so right in the sense that we all have so much more in common than we do have differences. And we've talked about it before on this show. It's like you have a scale, and animal based is way over here, and vegetarian vegan is way over there. It's like no, 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 no. Let's redo the scale. Let's include everybody in the on you know in the country or planet whatever, and let's take the small slice of people who care about their diet, whether they're you know vegan vegetarian vegan or carnivore we have so much more in common than the rest of the world who's eating complete junk like at the very least we can have some common ground there this is it this is it and sadly as we can discuss it maybe now or a little later on as we talk um the dogma is creeping into the the carnivore diet as well um we you and i have seen it i think i shared a post with you uh, our right. message on instagram and my fundamental thing is we all need to link arms somewhere somehow we need to find common ground with people and realize that everyone is individual everyone is going on their own journey we're we only have this body once during this lifetime we're all trying to do the best with it we can and understand that everyone's background where they are where they came from to this current point in time is going to be different just 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 like that and you know for the carnivores out there and i i truly believe now this is the way we were meant to eat as 
as human beings, you know, and it doesn't have to be strict, but if you include mostly animal foods in there, from my perspective, that's a wonderful thing. And you're, you're ahead of so many other people in the game, but to be dogmatic and make people feel like they're inferior because they're not following your ideal ideologies it's just never a good thing. It's just not a good thing. You have to welcome people. You know, we're all trying here, right, Casey? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, at this point, you've already mentioned the Game Changers, and what an amazing piece of propaganda that was. That was <laughs> oh, so, man. so, so well done. But I was a little bummed out when I saw that members of our community did a debunking video, which is totally fine, but at the same time, they were kind of making fun of some of the people in Game Changers, and and you know what? That bummed me out a little bit. I, I don't think that really pushes the message forward and, and you know, tries to build bridges with people. I think the more that we're, like, belittling other people, it just I don't, I don't jive with that kind of thing, man. I think we can stick to the facts and we can show the facts and we can live our lives as an example, which is something you posted about today, which I absolutely love. But but to come out and like make fun of other people for whatever their choices are, I, I'm not a fan. Absolutely, Casey. And, and you'll see me when I post things that are poking fun or humorous on Instagram. I try to make fun of myself because I don't want to make fun of other people. I don't know what their journey's like. It's not it's not nice. It's not my, nice to feel that way at all. And and. I just want to make, I make fun of myself because I look back now from where I am now to what I was thinking then. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I fell for that hook, line and sinker. <laughs> and, you know, you, you look at things like game changers and the dietary guidelines in the U S from 1977 and what we should eat and shouldn't eat and things like forks over knives. You know, now that I've gone down the rabbit hole on most regenerative farmers and how they actually take care of their animals and want to treat the soil and the earth and do better for the planet. And yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's just not a nice thing to make fun of other people to gain leverage for your followers or your Instagram likes. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I love that you take that approach on social media. Let's get back to your journey. Everything yep. is improving. You're feeling really good. Where do the wheels start to come off? <laughs> yeah, let's say right around the fifth year of veganism, things start to start to get bad. You know, I uh, was working uh, and started to notice vision problems. Uh, my eyes started getting blurry. Um, my memory was getting worse. I was thinking, man, I would, I've been taking exams up to that point. I couldn't remember anything. I started to notice my, my pants were fitting looser. Like I had been going to the gym, but I wasn't expecting to be losing all this weight. Um, then all of a sudden severe constipation kicked in to the point where it was painful. I literally looked like I was pregnant and I had issues there. My skin started getting flaky. My hair was falling out. Um, I started, like I mentioned to you, losing weight with, with not, not only just putting as much as I could in my mouth, I couldn't keep the weight on. It was ridiculous, ridiculous. And, you know, I thought to myself, something is, something is really, really wrong here. Um, um, starting to get nervous. So I went and got a bunch of tests done with my GP and, you know, my thyroid was starting to get out of whack as well. I was hypothyroid and then swung over to hyperthyroid and was going all over the place. And, uh, but they couldn't exactly nail it down. And uh, it was right around this time that the pandemic hit. And I remember right before the pandemic hit that December 2019, I went up to Virginia where my parents have a second home and, and went, I actually had to go to hospital because I had severe blood in my stool. That was definitely not normal, just blood like crazy. It would not stop. And, uh, you know, I, I went to hospital there. They found out actually amongst one of the things I had, I had a, a, a quite a, a rare bacterial infection 
um, who knows how I got that. So it was lucky they found that, that they just said, let it run its course. I don't know how well that worked out for me because uh, it continued to get worse for me. But um, I came back home with the full intention, uh, which is why I couldn't have the colonoscopy because I had a bacterial infection. Because as you know, when you have any infection to for the safety of the doctors and others, you cannot have a colonoscopy um, because it can transfer on equipment and everything else. So came back home, the pandemic hit, and I just continued to spiral downhill. And the hospital here, because we have a very small hospital closed down for any sort of quote-unquote elective surgery, small surgeries, because they wanted to save the room, the little room we had for the COVID patients at the time. And I was I was terrified for my life. I It was a scary time, Casey. That's all I can say to your listeners. Um, you're losing weight. You're bleeding out of your bowels. Um, you can't remember anything. You're getting weaker and weaker. Uh, I remember trying to uh, get up and use the bathroom. I couldn't do it. Um, go back to bed. Um, if I did, it was pretty much mostly blood. And uh, yeah, it was it was a tough time, man. That's that's well, that's what happened. It it went downhill. And it went downhill pretty quickly. Wow. So again hindsight 2020 when you it's a similar question to before when you look back at your diet at that time you have to be thinking this is the healthiest diet i can possibly be on i'm doing myself as many favors as i possibly can what the hell else is going on did it even occur to you that the diet was maybe detracting or did you still think this is what's helping i thought this was what's helping um and i'm sorry my voice is getting lower there just a little emotional because when i think about <laughs> those times and just feeding myself a whole what I know now to be so terrible for my digestion. I mean, I went pretty deep, Casey. I, I was pounding the kale smoothies. I had found this doctor online who was a vegan doctor because I never thought the diet could be wrong. I thought there's no way the vegan diet is the ultimate. I'm eating whole foods, plant-based. This can't be it. I've just got to keep going. I've got to suffer through this. And I found this uh, plant-based doctor online who said she cured her auto autoimmune diseases uh, by juicing kale smoothies at every spinach and kale loaded with fruit at every meal and uh, with chia seeds included. And I pounded them every day, packed a whole bag of spinach, whole bag of kale, pounded the pound of them. And it was literally ripping my intestines apart. I didn't know any better at the time. I thought this was going to heal me and it was literally killing me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I appreciate you going here with us and I know how difficult this is, but I, I do have to ask, like, what, what do you oh, consider? Man, yeah. What do you consider to be the low point? Where was rock bottom for you? I was laying in bed and hadn't been able to move because I was so exhausted and so weak at 128 pounds and like a 27 inch waist at a six foot two human. I looked at myself in the mirror as I went into the bathroom and had to give myself an enema because I couldn't, I couldn't go to the bathroom any other way. And I continued to bleed. And I thought to myself, I've got to, I've got to do something. I've got to, I've got to cheer myself up a little bit here. And went outside. Uh, we, as you may or may not know, we ride mopeds here in Bermuda as a form of transportation. And I said to myself, well, I'm going to go for a little drive that lasted about three to four seconds because not only could I not lift it off the stand when I did manage to get off the stand, it fell on top of me. And I was, I was too weak to to get it up. So I had to call for help and get somebody else to pick it up off me. And that was it for me. I said, something's got to, something's got to change here, Casey. So this is just not normal. What am I doing? What's going to happen? And I remember going back inside and breaking down in tears and with my wife and saying, I, I don't know if I'm going to be around 
for you. I'm really scared. We we shed a lot of tears together that that day. I can recall it vividly. Yep. Wow. I you know I listened to a podcast recently with one of the passengers in the plane that uh, Captain Sully piloted. Um, so mm-hmm. so basically saved the entire plane. Nobody died. But but hearing the call that like brace for impact and like just immediately knowing like I'm going to die. Like there's no way out. I'm going to die. And there was this feeling of like, it's not, he would, he didn't feel panicked. Um, but he just, he just said like, I'm, I'm really kind of bummed. I'm bummed that I don't get to see my kids grow up. And I thought that was really powerful. And from that, he made what he calls his collecting bad wines, um, idea in life. And what he does is like, if anytime there's an occasion, any kind of occasion, he uses the very best wine. And so he ends up with all these like really crappy wines because he, his appreciation for life completely shifted at that time. Did, did you have a similar experience where getting that close to death and getting that close to saying goodbye to your loved ones? Did that give you a different perspective on life after the afterwards? 150% of that is such a great story. I love that. I have heard you tell that one before and I just love that story. It really resonates. It's with me. Um, you know, you know, I also should tell your listeners that not only, not only at this time when the pandemic it hit was my health going down the toilet, but I lost my job. So I had no health insurance or anything on top of that. So I had to figure out a way out. <laughs> it was incumbent on me to do everything I could because I didn't have any money to pay for doctor's visits, even if I could go to one um, or let alone if I needed major surgery. Um, I mean, of course, if that was the case, I would have done it, but we couldn't. There was no option. So I had to figure out a way out. Um, but I, I found solace in podcasts. I asked my wife, you know, I, I can't really take anything in. The brain fog is kicking my rear end and I'm struggling. And she said, well, why don't you try listening to podcasts? And and I did. And I found Sally Norton. God bless her. <laughs> you know, um, lost seasonality and the overconsumption of plants, that beautiful YouTube video that is, was put up there. And I came across that one day and I, and I watched it and immediately I thought there's hope. I think I know what's going on here. Immediate. So <laughs> it know? was immediate. Uh, I, yeah. I, I really thought, okay, maybe I'm doing this all wrong. There's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> so, so you're saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. Wow. That is absolutely incredible. So from that discussion, what things did you take away and what things did you start to shift? Yeah. So I, I thought, well, okay. So let me get this straight. Let me rewatch this again. So we've been over consuming plants because they've been bred to uh, avoid seasonality. Whereas in the past, if we did consume them, consume them, especially, um, you know, in different areas of the world, we wouldn't have access to them. Um, so we've been breeding them. They're always available now in every grocery store you go to. And moreover, plants have these defense chemicals in them. You know, uh, Sally preaches about the oxalate ones, which are harmful to humans. If you eat them in any meaningful volume, even if it's not a me- meaningless volume, they're still can be harmful to you. But I mean, as a vegan plant-based, I was shoveling some of the worst offenders into my mouth every single day from beet tops to beets, to chia seeds, to turmeric powder, to spinach, to kale, uh, juicing these things, which is even a worse form of doing it because it's so much more bioavailable and wrecks your system. But these crystals are literally lethal. And I thought, okay, So what you're telling me is that the plants that I've been eating are probably contributing towards my ill health. And I went down the rabbit hole deep, Casey. I I thought, okay, I'm going to go, man. I'm going to just search whatever I can on oxalates. And I went into oxalates. I listened to every podcast that she had done to that time. And then I went on and like you, I found 
God bless him, Dr. Sean Baker's post on, on Rogan and watched it for the first time. And I, and like you, I admitted to myself, I don't think I can do this. This guy's crazy. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. And it was something that I pondered over for at least a couple of weeks before I said, okay, I'm going to introduce animal foods again. Because what I did, and I had mentioned this on previous talks that I've done, is that I actually lowered the oxalates first rather than introducing the animal foods. So what I thought was, okay, I'm going to lower the oxalate stuff, get the low ox foods, and then introduce if, if I need to animal foods. So it took a little while between that jump. So how, how was that first transition though? Did you see results from just lowering the high oxalate foods and staying plant-based vegan? I did, believe it or not, a couple of weeks later, some of the, I mean, I didn't even mention the crazy body pain I had throughout my body when I was bedridden. I was bedbound for the better part of a year. I mean, I moved to try and shower and go to the bathroom when when I could, but I went back to the bed. I was so weak, I couldn't pick up almost a five pound dumbbell, but um, I saw improvements from the severe body pain, the fibromyalgia I had, which was just rampant. I was so angry and anxious and depressed because I couldn't figure out what was going on. But immediately after going sort of low ox, I could feel those pain in my joints and my digestion going, oh my God, we're, we're having a break. The bombs have stopped. Please make them stop. It was pretty incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. So when you finally decided to add in more animal products, I, I want to ask what that journey was like, but what, how, how was the cognitive dissonance of that? After you've, after you've been, you know, in the vegan world and thoroughly convinced that this is the best thing for me. And, and again, we talked about it earlier, this is the best thing for the planet. You have a responsibility. You feel like you're doing something for the, the health of the planet. What was that cognitive dissonance like? It was, it was very difficult. It was a tremendous battle, Casey, to, to, to make this sit well in my mind. Um, I had, I thought to myself, if I was going to do this, I got to do this the right way, my man. I've got to figure out where I'm not putting a lot of harm on the animals, even if I reintroduce them. Um, I'm going to study about, uh, you know, the dairy farmers and the ranchers and see how they treat their animals. And I was going to go grass fed and I was going to do regenerative farming and I was going to do pastured eggs. And, you know, I, I went down a lot of, a lot of avenues to begin with, because even now, even now as a, I would say I am 95% carnivore. I still have them. We can talk about that later on, but uh, I still care how animals are treated. That, that, that hasn't left me. You know, I want them to be treated well whilst they're, I may use them as nutrition, um, but whilst they're alive, I want them to be treated fairly and equitably and, and have a good life while they're out there on pasture. I do. I, I want to, I want that. And, you know, anyone who missed, treats animals on purpose is not a, not exactly a great human being. I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And I see so much of that in this space and even people that do like simple things like hunting and fishing. I was just out on a camping trip not too long ago and this older couple was up there fishing and you could tell they were so gentle with the fish. They would push mm-hmm. the barbs in so it wouldn't really harm the fish and, and they would always catch and release. And if the fish swam away, then it got away and was fine. But, but if the fish didn't get away and, and stayed and passed away, that, that, that was their food. And they, they, you could see that level of respect that they had for that animal. And I see that across the board in this community. This is not a community of people that hate animals. They actually really love animals and respect them and want them to be treated fairly. Yeah. And one of the things my wife and do and I do before every single meal is just give thanks to the animal mm-hmm. for nourishing our bodies. You know, the circle of life, I believe it, man, where I'm going to be turned to dust one day as well and go back into the earth. 
And so when we have our meal, it's just a small thing that we do, but we pray and we say thank you to the animals for, for allowing us to heal and giving us the nutrition that we, that we need to serve better. I love that. That's yeah. so beautiful. So, okay. So physically, when you start integrating more animal products in, what does that look like? Where did you start and, and what things improved then? Yep. I started with fish first because I knew it. It was, it was the, the evil that I knew. <laughs> and I, I, I say that with all kidding. Um, but in all actuality, it's, it's much easier. It was much easier to digest for me because I tried a few things. I'll be honest. I tried a few, I said, oh, okay, I'm going to take a piece of Turkey, something chicken breast, pretty benign. Right. And it, it didn't sit well, I'll be honest with you. Um, but fish for whatever reason, maybe I was still having the enzymes and, and body knowledge from my vegetarian days, but it worked well. So I, I added salmon back in was the first one I remember. And man, <laughs> I remember that first piece of salmon that I had, it was unbelievable. It was really good. Um, my digestion suffered a little bit, but I was so happy that I was able to get it down, get it in my stomach and Hey, we're, we're off to the races now. Um, cause as you may or may not know, when, you're a vegetarian for so long and then vegan, your body stops producing a lot of the enzymes that break down the meat products. Um, so I had to supplement quite heavily. And one of the main things is your stomach acid lowers. It lowers anyway as we get older, but you know, your stomach acid definitely lowers when you go on a plant-based diet because it doesn't have to work as hard. It's just all that fiber coming through. There's nothing to break down in terms of amino acids in the meat, right? So I had to figure out that I had to supplement not only with digestive enzymes and quite a few um, betaine HCL tablets to help me digest the meats and fish that I was eating. But um, it was a slow process, but it was one that was remarkable in terms of how I felt. The main thing for me, Casey, was the brain switching back on. The main thing was that brain fog lifting, man. And I, there's a lot of my symptoms that I would never, ever want again in a lifetime, but that's severe debilitating brain fog where you just feel like you're in a cloud all day and echoing and tinnitus ringing in your ears. You literally, you, you don't want to, you don't want to get out of bed. It's too much, man. It's ridiculous. Wow. That is absolutely crazy. Every vegan who transitions back onto animal, you know, some animals in the diet, they always describe that first bite. And it, it seems like the fog lifting, the lights turn on, like all it, it, it almost seems like within minutes, it's a, it's a complete game changer. Oh yeah. It was for me. I, I took that bite and for sure. I mean, I won't say mine was minutes, but certainly later that day, I was like, wow, I'm, I feel a little bit clearer headed. Gabby, I, it's my wife. I said, I feel a little bit better. My energy feel, I feel like I could just go for a little, a little walk outside or something. She was like, wow. I'm like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Wow. And as a plant-based chef, how was she responding to all of this? Oh, she's fantastic. Um, she's been, um, actually slowly adding in back animal foods to her diet and as well and seeing tremendous results for her. Tremendous. I mean, Casey, these, you know, one of the things I can, I keep, please apologize to your listeners. As I recall things, my testosterone went in the toilet on the vegan diet. I mean, it was terrible. This is eating meat and eating fat is how we build hormones, right? This is, you know, I knew I was coming up then in my 45 and 50, but it, when I'd say you went off a precipice, it just went shoom. And, uh, you know, same for females, even more importantly for females is getting that healthy fats in the diet. And, um, you know, as especially in their childbearing years and, you know, coming up to uh, later stages in life, they need to, we all need to be having that to avoid sarcopenia, muscle wasting as we get older too. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, 
Yeah, she's been tremendously, tremendously supportive. People ask me, often ask me, you know, who would I like to thank? And she's number one on the list. She stuck through me, Casey, through some pretty dark days, scary days. And also ones where I was not fun to be around. You know, I was scared for my life. And, you know, when you're in that brain fog and not thinking straight and your memory's going and you're worried about yourself and worried about people you may be leaving behind, you're, the depression and anxiety was not good. And she stuck with me through those dark times, man. It's incredible. So it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Gabby. That's absolutely amazing. As you, as you're transitioning back on animal foods, when do you start to think about doing a carnivore diet and go, you know, fully into eating animal products? Yeah, man, that was that, that was that infamous Dr. Baker episode on Rogan. Um, it took me a few days to process everything. I must've watched it three or four times. And then I started digging down again on more podcasts and I, I and I found, you know, Dr. Chafee when he was first starting out, I remember his first ones, you know, how to carnivores on his series. Yeah, really good. Um, I, I found Dr. Ken Berry, who's, um, a really wealth of information. Um, and I found carnivore yogi, Sarah Kleiner. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I just listened and I thought, okay, these, I said to myself, Casey, these are doctors here talking to me about this and the benefits of, of, of eating this way. I said, there's gotta be some credence. There's gotta be some truthfulness to this. Um, and just the way they presented the information, I couldn't ignore it. And I said, yeah, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I know what I need to do. And I started and it, you know, I went through the transitionary uh, phase, the fat adaptation phase and, and my, my journey is ongoing, but from how I feel currently to where I was a year ago is night and day. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. These, this is why we're having this conversation. I want people to know there is hope. There is hope when you're in your darkest days, when you're lying there thinking, okay, is this my last day? You can heal. There are ways, there is a lot of effort involved. You have to put in the effort to get back the reward. It's, there's nothing is given freely. It really isn't, and um, it's been a, it's been a it's been a long road, but one that was filled with emotions, both positive and up and downs. Um, but I have my life back, and I will be forever, ever grateful for that. Wow, forever. Wow, yep. that's that's amazing. You sent me an interview a few weeks ago um, of Sally Norton, who we've been talking about, uh, appearing as a guest on Daniel Vitalis' podcast. His podcast, his original podcast, was the first one that I ever found. And so I'm really familiar with him and his work and and so many of the things that I've learned about health I, I have to attribute to him, which is great. And in the interview, he kind of he kind of joked a little bit about how, you know, of course somebody being a vegan would would then go to carnivore just to swing, you know, the pendulum the other way and, you know, kind of kind of like you know, poke, poke the bear, I guess, to some of the vegans. And I'm glad Sally said what she did. She was like, no, 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 people are not going over to carnivore diets because they're trying to, you know, have that pendulum swing or be the anti-vegans. No, people go to carnivore to heal themselves. And I'm really glad she said that because I have certainly found that to be the case. Like I don't see a lot of people that are eating only meat just because they want to show the vegans what's up. Like they are doing it for very real reasons. And a lot of that has to do with that healing that you're talking about. Casey, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, from my experience so far as a sort of newbie-ish carnivore, uh, I just can't thank the community enough for everything that they do. I mean, it's because when you get this healing that is possible on the carnivore way of eating, you have to tell people about it. So many of our friends that we've chatted to, so many of these doctors themselves have, have been healed through eating this way. And it is, you know... The best testimony, as I said today, is a changed life, isn't it? 
And you have to get out there and, and tell people, I was looking forward to this and sharing my experience so much, man. I felt like a kid on Christmas morning to come on Boundless Body Radio, which I have so much respect for you guys, as I mentioned early on. And just to be able to tell my story, even if it impacts one person, I feel like today was worth it for me. Uh, I, I just want to get that message out there. And for people, I'm not telling you, you have to go whole carnivore to heal yourself. Experiment with, with, with what works for you. Don't be afraid to experiment. Try things. If you're coming from a plant-based background and you are, are a vegan background and, and you're not thriving, you know, think about it and say, okay, well, let's try this for a little while and see what happens. Um, for me, it's what changed my life, honestly. And, you know, until people try and have the open-mindedness, I'm sorry, the word, um, to try things, you know, you're going to be stuck on repeat and life is too short. I, I know that all too well. It can go so quickly and end so quickly if you're not careful. So try these things. There, There is healing out there. Listen to people. Listen to every episode of Boundless Body Radio. Go back in the archives. There's a wealth of information there that Casey's put in hours of work to put out there for you guys. We so much appreciate James and his wonderful journey. We really appreciate his kind words about our show as well, but that's obviously not why we're doing this. We really appreciate all the work that he put in and 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 to really be, I don't know, upfront about his emotion and, and really how dangerous that diet was for him. We are going to go to a clip from an author, Jane Reese Buxton, who wrote the book, The Great Plant-Based Con. We interviewed her back in episode 303 of Boundless Body Radio. I think it would be, it would be important to take some time now to highlight the difference between nutrients that come from plants versus nutrients that come from animals. We're going to hear another world expert right after her, but I thought this would be a good time to kind of explain the difference between those two things, the things that we get from plants versus the things that we get from animals. I can't recommend her book highly enough. The, the great plant-based con, why eating a plants-only diet won't improve your health or save the planet. I really recommend that you do go back to episode 303. Listen to that whole episode. This is a very small part of that discussion which was very nuanced and very deep, but I thought this was the most uh, relevant to stick in here. So we're going to listen to Jane Reese Buxton. So let's talk about the difference between plant foods and animal foods as far as nutrients go. This is something you really yeah. cover quite a bit. And again, we yeah. all are presented with this idea that, that animal foods are inferior to plant foods as far as nutrients and vitamins and minerals. Everybody knows you need the broccoli, the kale, the spinach, whatever, to be able to yeah. get those nutrients. So what were some of the things you learned about the nutrient qualities between animal foods and plant foods? Well, they all, you know, plants and animal foods each have their benefits, as you just said. They So there are certain minerals, for instance, you can get better you can get more of them more of those minerals from plants and certain ones where animal foods deliver the best the same thing with vitamins but if you look in the round if you're only eating plants you're going to be missing out on certain very key nutrients and you know i'm thinking preformed vitamin a i'm thinking b12 um uh d3 dha epa zinc iron a couple of others, you know, and there's even um, L-arginine, which I always have trouble saying, which helps to synthesize nitric oxide, which is very good for the heart. That's also uh, a, a component of, of animal foods and, and not plant foods. So I think that there's an open and shut case for those missing nutrients. It's very hard to argue against that, although people try. And people say either 
they they either throw back um, that we don't really need those nutrients or, oh, we can get those from a pill. We can get those from a supplement. So, and I've had this experience the other day when I was at a book festival and I gave a presentation on um, some of the nutrients that were missing in plants-only diets. And the vegan activist author who was debating me just simply said, well, my book lists all the ways that you can find those through supplements. And I think if you take a supplement and you can spare an animal's life, then that's the way to do it. So I think that what we need to think about is what is the purpose of food, right? Food is meant to do something for us. Um, it is meant to nourish us. It's meant to keep us alive and healthy. So I question the very basis and the principle of an approach that says, oh, don't worry about what you're getting from the food. Let's just take a supplement. I think that that's profoundly dangerous. Um, and somehow some dangerous technocratic view of the world, which I don't like to see. Yeah, I agree. And look, it's 2022. You can, if you have the resources, if you have the money, you can drive down the street to the supplement store and you can buy those supplements. And I, I would can. be on your side and argue that whether your body even absorbs those supplements is very questionable. Right. It's not the same as eating food sources. So we'll start there. But just the statement, if we, ju if we just say B12, you will not get B12 by eating a plants-only diet. That's going to cause a lot of very serious issues. Yeah. That mm -hmm. one argument alone tells you that that diet is insufficient. <laughs> you have to supplement. That yeah. was not possible 40 years ago. You couldn't do that. No. And I am amazed how people sort of dance around that issue. When yeah. we talk about we don't, we don't need to eat B12. Uh, sorry, we don't need to eat animal foods because we can get B12 somewhere else. People dance around that and they don't recognize the absolutely fundamental nature of that vitamin for health and that long-term uh, deficiency can cause neurological diseases, spinal diseases, and uh, brain diseases, particularly in young children and babies. Um, so you know, that that to me is is kind of a mystery that people keep wanting to dance around that and avoid confronting that fact. And in fact, I was, you might have read this bit in the book that there was a piece uh, written by somebody from the vegan society that actually warned vegans against trying to get their B12 from certain forms of algae. Did you, do you remember that? Yeah. Because those forms are B12 analogs which mimic B12 and they make the deficiency even worse. That's right. So there's, there's some acknowledgement of that. And yet, and yet, you know, we have people denying that it's important. That's right. Yeah, no, it blows my mind. The, the vitamin A thing is really interesting because you mentioned preformed yeah. vitamin A. A yeah. lot of, a lot of arguments I hear from plant-based is like, well, we don't need that from animal foods because we can get beta carotene from things like carrots. Yeah. And they don't understand yeah. that just because there's something in the food doesn't mean you're going to be able to convert it very well. And that's an example of a nutrient that really isn't converted very well inside the human body. That's right. And there are, there's, I think it's something at like 40 to 50% of people cannot convert it. Right. And so again, when I brought this up in my talk with this other author, he just said, well, that's not true. So boom, you know, get rid of that problem. <laughs> okay. Like that, that's the thing that's so frustrating is you'll just say like, oh, that's garbage. Oh, it's not true. Like yeah. explain, that's explain, right. tell me why. And they never have an answer. I'll just come back yeah. and say something rude. Well, 
the, the most honesty, and I do respect this level of honesty in people, is when they say, I know all that. I know that the diet, the, the plants only diet is deficient in X, Y, and Z, but I'm willing to make that sacrifice for the animals. And that's what I do. Fair enough. Fair. You can't argue with that. Fair. Yep. Fair. Yep. Yeah. Totally great. And, and it, it is like, if that's your choice and you want to do it and you know the facts, that's fine. But it, being ignorant to the facts is a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah totally. And you um, know, I, the, the iron thing is also, it, it amazes me that, you know, there are something like 2 billion people in the world who are iron defit, who are anemic. And that is largely an iron deficiency disease. It's not entirely, but it largely is. And um, it amazes me that with that statistic, which is acknowledged by the WHO, um, we are recommending in any way the removal of meat and animal foods from the diet because those are the foods that could cure that problem. Yeah, that's so, right. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's really unwise, I think. Absolutely. All these years, I've been consuming canned spinach, just like Popeye. I thought it was going to give me big yeah. muscles. What a waste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's also yeah. interesting when we look at the protein consumption. So people argue like, oh, yeah. this, is, this is a weird one, but people argue like, okay, I can get enough protein from plant foods. Plant foods do contain protein. They might not yeah. have the exact right amino acid profile. So you mentioned in the book, several combinations of foods that you would have to combine. You almost have to be like a chemist or something when you're putting these yes. meals together to be able to, um, to get the right amount of amino acids. Yeah, that's exactly right. So not only is that difficult, but I think it's just impractical to expect that everybody's going to do that. People don't even know they have to do that many people but even if they do life just isn't like that where you could you know weigh everything out and do your mathematical formulas and and all of that and even when you do that you still have to eat mountains of the stuff yeah right okay, okay. so i've got so, that marked right here yeah. i love this yes. so say you set out to get all your essential amino acids from single plant source such as chickpeas okay you could do so by getting 700 grams of boiled chickpeas in a single meal for us in the states that's three cups Three yeah. cups. Yeah. You'd be bloated out to here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it, first of all, like just common sense. It's not even really like doable or practical. And then you make this point, which I love. It comes with a price tag of 1,200 calories and over 140 grams of carbohydrate. So it's not just yeah. that you're getting the protein. You're getting all kinds of other stuff that you probably didn't want to have to begin with. That's right. So the protein leverage hypothesis, which you'll be familiar with, is that people eat until they get the right amount of protein. And if you're therefore getting the protein from a plant source that has a lot of carbohydrate, you're gonna keep eating it, if you can possibly stomach it, um, to, to the point where you're getting excess carbohydrate and calorie intake. And so I think you'll get one of two situations uh, with people who want to get all their protein from those kinds of foods. You'll get excess carbohydrate consumption with all the risks that that contains for obesity, diabetes, and, and metabolic ill health, or you won't get that, but you'll get protein deficiency. Yeah. So I think, and you know, protein is something we take for granted now. I think in Western societies where we think we have access to lots of it, we take for granted just how important it is yeah. and, and how much we can get. I remember, you know, last year, my mother, who's 89, had an operation 
And uh, the doctor sent, pulled me aside as we took her home and said, if you don't get enough protein into her, she will not recover. And that to me just captured that whole uh, criticality of protein for recovery, for building muscle, for sustaining muscle, for sustaining organ function. It's, it's not, it's not a, a nutrient to take lightly. That's right. It really is not. Yeah. Especially as we age, we need that muscle mass. People might hear yeah. building muscle and think, okay, I, you know, I'm 70 years old. Building muscle is not what I want to do. I don't want to look like a bodybuilder, but we're talking about protecting yourself from the fall that everybody takes yeah. and basically is game over. You mentioned protein leverage and you mentioned Ted Naiman yeah. in the book, who's also been in our, our podcast to be able to talk yeah. about this. And I always think back to the last time I had a bag of uh, tortilla chips and salsa Yeah, and I ate a chip and I ate a chip. And I ate a chip and I ate a chip. And before, before, like in a shockingly short amount of time, my hand is hitting the bottom of the bag and I'm still hungry. And most people can you appreciate can that. And yeah, totally. All of us can get involved, can at least understand that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what happens. Ted Naiman, by the way, knows more about protein than probably, you know, absolutely. most people in the world. He, absolutely. Yeah. And he grew so up. I can't claim to know that much, but I, I know enough to know it's damned important. It's damned important. Absolutely. And we'll talk yeah. about this a little bit later on, but he grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, Very interesting. Yeah. In your book, you set this up so brilliantly. I love it. Where you have one chapter that says, these are the things that you're not going to get enough of. Now, in yes. this chapter, we're going to show you the flip side. These are the things that you're going to get too much of. What are some surprising things you learned about people eating a plant-based diet getting too much of certain things? Well, the first one I covered is, is what really surprised me um, was the oxalates. Um, because um, I literally, before I started doing this research, I had no idea about those. Um, and then I, I uh, did the research and I spoke to Sally Norton, who, by the way, have you had her on your yeah, show? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked to her tomorrow yeah. again for the second time. Oh, good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And she's got a book coming out soon, yep. November or something. Yep. And uh, she knows so much about this. And so I think it makes perfect sense that oxalates in small quantities, which is how we're meant to consume them in seasonally chosen foods, right? they don't do you any harm or they don't do most people any harm. Then you, if you recommend that everybody eats only plant foods, you're going to, by definition, be overloading many people with those uh, oxalates. So I think it's an absolute certainty that if everybody were to go down that route, we would see an oxalate overload problem in the population. Yeah, absolutely. Not to mention things like phytates and lectins. The phytate thing is super right. interesting. And you cite the study, which I, I still find absolutely mind-blowing. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the famous study with the oysters? Yeah, so there's a, a famous, it's quite old now, but um, very, very valuable and relevant, which shows how much zinc you can absorb in the body um, by eating oysters if you eat it with certain other foods. And so if you eat it with, and I forget the exact detail, you probably have it right there, but if you're eating it with uh, a corn tortilla, the oysters, you will absorb virtually none of the zinc, right? And then there's another food, which is also a plant-based high phytic acid food. Is it black beans, I um, think? Black beans, you absorb something like 50% of the zinc. Now, this is, that's a, a funny little study that, that is very instructive, but the WHO recognizes this because they have set the um, RDAs 
for zinc at twice as high for those countries where the diets are full of phytic acid and not very full of animal proteins. So they know that it's happening. They know. Since it has come up twice in our discussion already, you might be wondering what in the heck is an oxalate and what is oxalic acid? We are going to take another short clip with a world expert in oxalates, uh, which is Sally Norton. She is amazing. We have interviewed her twice on episodes 208 and 310. This is an episode from the former episode 208 of Boundless Body Radio. We've interviewed several experts about oxalate and different plant toxins that can really build up in people. And so I wanted to just include this here as well so that you can get a better understanding of what oxalates are, where they come from, why plants use them, and what things they can do in our body. This is quite a crazy story, but I wanted to make sure that we told it here. Oxalate is this tiny little chemical, and plants like to make a lot of it. It's really quite distributed through nature, too. It's not just plants making it. Polluted air makes it. Soil funguses make it. Um, it's so, when you start reading about oxalate and really digging around to find it, uh, it's surprising how ubiquitous, how ubiquitous oxalate is. And one of the reasons is it's a small molecule with two carbons. So it's an organic two carbon molecule. It has four oxygens on it. It's very oxidative and plants often in order to make this stuff, they first, they make vitamin C because vitamin C very easily converts into oxalate. And so if you take a lot of vitamin C supplements, a lot of that can become oxalate in the body. So we eat oxalate because plants make it and we eat the plants. And, uh, oh my gosh, I could just talk about oxalate in, in nature. And it's fascinating that the soot that forms after you burn wood, a lot of that is oxalate crystals. You see the calcium oxalate forms from oxalic acid, the little two carbon molecule. It likes to drop hydrogens, little acids around and and picks up positively charged minerals like calcium, iron, magnesium, and so on. And that's why oxalic acid is used as a cleaner. (laughs) You can clean the rust off of your patio with oxalic acid. They use it to clean out radiators and clean down engines. It's been used in industry to bleach fabrics, wood, and leather since the late 1700s and we eat it every day in popular health foods like the almonds and cashews, hemp, chia, peanuts, pine nuts. So the nuts and seeds are really high, including the sesame seeds. And then there's certain fruits that are high, like the kiwi I was doing uh, pears can be high, the zest of lemons and citrus fruit, but the, the fruit itself is not, but just the skin, uh, plantains, pomegranate, rhubarb is the classic high oxalate food. People have been known to kill themselves eating rhubarb leaves because of the oxalic acid in rhubarb. Wow. Star fruit, people drop dead from eating star fruits because of oxalate. Black beans aren't so good. The beans we make Boston baked beans with aren't so good. A lot of those white beans like northern beans, pinto beans aren't so great. And then there's all these new pseudo grains that are really popular now, like amaranth and buckwheat is probably the worst of the pseudo grains. Buckwheat, um, teff, quinoa. What's the other one? Amaranth. I don't know. Anyway, 
popular being used because we're in this kind of gluten and wheat avoiding period right now. And people still want their bread and their desserts. So they're using these other things that are high in oxalate. Potatoes are very high. We grow up on tater tots, chips, and French fries and keep eating them. And when you go out for lunch, you, it's usually, do you want chips or fries? And for dinner, do you want baked or fries with that? You know, like it's everywhere. Plus, you know, we're turning things like plantain into chips and we're turning beets and other high oxalate roots into chips. Then there's the black tea and a couple of the spices, including turmeric, are all high in oxalate. And the one people never want to hear about is chocolate, carob and chocolate, the cocoa powder fraction of chocolate is very high in oxalic acid. Uh, We just lost a lot of listeners. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Sorry. Okay, I think it's it's so interesting to hear about all those plant foods that are really high in oxalate. And I think it's so important also to say, what is the reason that a plant would make a compound like this? I mean, oftentimes, we just think that these plants are around so that we can eat them, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Well, you know, if you really hold still long enough to realize that you think the plants were put here for you, you got to think about how humans are. We're so egocentric. Plants came first and they are stable, stationary beings. They have roots in the ground. They stay in one place. They don't have a lot of ways to run away and defend themselves or hide. They're right out there in the sunshine, baking up the sun, providing us with oxygen, doing us many services. Without plants, we would be dead. But it's not because we need to eat them. It's because we need them to create this little thin layer on the plant that allows life to happen. Without the plants, there wouldn't be everything we need to have life. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to eat them. Plants don't wanna be eaten. They have to defend themselves from funguses, insects, and herbivores. They have to defend themselves from diseases. They have to deal with uneven amounts of calcium in the soil. If they create more oxalic acid, they can shunt calcium and set it aside. A lot of the tree bark that sheds off trees is loaded with oxalate because the trees are shedding off this excess calcium. Something like 200 pounds of oxalate can be, uh, calcium oxalate crystals can be coming off in a year on a, a very large tree. Wow. Yeah, so they need to shed the calcium. They also have to deal with their own metabolism. Plants can use oxalic acid and calcium oxalate to generate hydrogen peroxide to fight off funguses. And it's a great way to store calcium when you need it for later. And what plants' big priority is the next generation. All living things care about their babies. And plant babies, we call them seeds. Seeds are all pretty much prone to having quite a bit of calcium oxalate there because that's a way of giving the seed the calcium it will need for when it germinates, it needs calcium as a cofactor that helps the enzymes build amino acids and build a new plant. Mm. Wow. Okay. So when you were saying that you were at school and nobody taught you about this, this was not talked about. I took a second to rifle through my nutrition manual and, you know, I don't have a degree in this. I didn't go to Cornell and have, you know, the education that you did, but I rifled through to see if I could find oxalate. There's nothing in the book about oxalate. There was something about, um, photo phytonutrients and hormetic stress. And we think that these phyto quote unquote nutrients are good for us because they cause a small amount of stress in the body, but that's not necessarily the case is it? No, things like 
polyphenols, for example, they're, they're considered one of these plant phytonutrients. We're giving different plant names. We're calling them phytonutrients because they're not essential nutrients, but they're compounds that plants make that interact with our biology. And they typically stress our biology in ways that helps make us better. So it's like a workout for your biology. And that's how medications work too, where you're basically providing a little bit of a toxin in the right dose that allows you to respond in a way that has healing benefits. But we think now that we should load up on these thi- on these plant molecules and chemicals because we see in the lab some potential benefits. But it's very one-sided. We have this benefits-only mindset because we live in such a commercial world now that even researchers are concerned about what could be patentable, what products could we develop, you know, how could I become the best guy in the block and get tenure faster and, you know, and so on. And so there's a distortion and even how researchers are thinking about things to the point where they're not spending enough energy on, okay, there there's evidence this might be helpful, but there's this other side and who's going to fund the other side. Who's going to let me publish about the other side. That's not really happening. And then we have media taking findings that seem positive and blowing them up. But if you look at like plant polyphenols and you look around for anybody willing to talk about the other side of it, you'll find things like, well, the body doesn't like to absorb them. They remain in the GI tract because the body has no interest in them in terms of helping physiology or doing anything good inside your system. And then the, while they're there hanging around in your stomach and intestines, they are inhibiting enzymes that let you digest lipids, proteins, and so on. And so you reduce your ability to gain amino acids and such from your food by eating a high polyphenol diet. As we mentioned in the beginning, the idea for this episode came from Alyssa Grubner, and we are now going to hear her story. She describes growing up as being, you know, always overweight and not understanding what to do. She went through several different iterations of different diets, including calorie restriction in high school um, to eating, you know, lots of diet sodas and sometimes gummy worms, as she describes it, and really struggling with poor health, not only being overweight, then losing a bunch of weight and then becoming overweight again, but also dealing with serious chest pains and a huge problem with high blood pressure, which you're gonna hear now. So I thought her story was very interesting. She was the genesis for this entire project and this idea. So let's hear Alyssa's story now. You know, vegan, vegetarian propaganda, it's everywhere. everywhere. And I remember thinking, yes, it's absolutely everywhere. And I remember thinking, okay, it's time to take this to the next level. It's time to get serious and stop eating meat. So that was my next step. Um, And so I went through that and I did lose more weight doing that. I lost weight, did not necessarily gain health, you know? Um, And I, and I had gotten down to a a weight that I was happy with. It It would have been a really good weight for me in high school. And it's like the weight I am now, like 150 pounds. So, and, and I feel like I kind of relaxed because I was like, okay, well, I, I beat this thing and I was not monitoring my blood pressure at the time. I just assumed because I had lost weight that all was good. Um, fast forward, I got pregnant with my son uh, shortly after that. Um, and the first doctor's visit 
uh, prenatal doctor's visit, they're like, well, your blood pressure is high. And I was like, well, how can that be? I just, I didn't eat meat for all this time. And I spent all this time losing all this weight, you know, and you know, the blood pressure was still high. And, uh, I, uh, I went through that pregnancy thinking, okay, well, at least there'll be a healthier pregnancy. I still didn't start eating meat again. Um, and it was the, it was the worst pregnancy ever. Like I was severely depressed, um, craving meat all the time, um, for obvious reasons, because you need that to grow a healthy baby. And, um, and so I'm hoarding all of these uh, faux meat burgers. I thought tasted a lot like meat at the time. And I was even more unhealthy in that pregnancy than I was. Even though I didn't gain as much weight, I was, I was less healthy than I was with the first one. And I was just like shutting down. Um, and my blood pressure was super high. And even though I was on medication at the time, uh, I actually had a doctor uh, scream at me while I was pregnant because I went into a doctor's visit and my blood pressure was sky high. And he's like, are you even taking this medication? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm taking it. Uh I guess it's not working. And it was like, he didn't, he didn't believe me that I was taking this and wow. it just wasn't working. Wow. Um, yeah. So that, that was a really bad experience. Um, just going through that whole pregnancy, dealing with doctors. And after I delivered him, after I delivered my son, I thought everything would be okay. You know, I, I go back to my pre-pregnancy weight and hopefully my, my blood pressure would go down again. And it was actually the opposite. After I had him, I started working on losing the weight, losing more weight. My blood pressure just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And it was the most baffling thing because the more weight I lost, which everyone was always telling me, if you just lose this weight, you're not going to have high blood pressure. You're not going to have issues with your heart or whatever's causing that pain in there. Um, and I, I got really thin. I think I was at the lowest, like 125 pounds. And that's when I was the, my most unhealthy. And I pretty much like hit rock bottom there. And I remember it was my son, it was right after my son's one year birthday. And I had just ran like three miles that morning, you know, had my green smoothie or whatever. And at, at this point I was vegan. I had cut out all the cheese, all the eggs because the blood pressure wasn't budging. And I was like, well, I guess it's because I'm just not being strict, strict enough with this plant-based thing. Um, and I remember that night, um, I just, I just did not feel right. I think I was having a really severe chest pain, like numbness going down my arm and just feeling terrible. So I took my blood pressure and it was something absolutely crazy. Like, even if you don't know anything about blood pressure, you would look at this number and be like, Oh, that's a problem. You should probably, you know, go to the ER, not make a doctor's appointment, but go to the ER. And that's, that's what I did. I went to the ER, get to the ER. My blood pressure is even higher there, probably, you know, from being nervous, but, um, uh, I go through triage, they draw my blood 
and like the phlebotomist gasped like uh, like at the same time I did because the color of my blood coming out into the tube was a milky mauve color okay blood is supposed to be you know that deep rich um like cabernet color right this was like if you had poured milk into grape juice, um, like something, yeah, absolutely crazy. And I know the phlebotomist had never seen anything like that just from the way they were like, you know, it was that, that stillness in the room, you know, that, that when people get freaked out, um, and they, they didn't say anything to me about this. They didn't give me like any answers. Um, you know, about my blood work or anything, I pretty much just got sent home with another, um, prescription for, uh, hypertension and then, uh, iron pills, which at the time I was kind of wondering, Hmm, I wonder if my blood was that color. Cause I'm low in iron or what I had no idea, but it really freaked me out. Um, and after that, that night and, uh, it was like, okay, well, nobody's going to help me. You know, nobody had any answers for me. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. You know, I wasn't eating meat or any eggs or butter or whatever. And I'm running and, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, taking this medication, nothing's working. And I really had it in my mind, like, I'm just going to die you know, and, and there's, I, I really felt hopeless, like I really lost hope. Um, but you know, if it hadn't been for my kids, really, I, I think I would have just given up and just, uh, stopped there. But, you know, I've got these two kids. I don't want to leave them in the world alone. They need me. They need the mom and the dad. And, um, so I, I didn't give up. Um, and I said, okay, well, I've got to figure this out. Got to figure this out myself. Um, and there, there was, I guess like, uh, I feel like I wasn't in my right mind at the time. And so when I was thinking that, okay, well, I'm just going to die. There was, it sounds so silly now. And I laugh about it every time I tell somebody about it. I remember saying to myself, well, if I'm going to die, I don't want people to blame this on my plant-based diet, you know? And I said, all right, well, I'm going to eat meat. So at least if I die, they're going to say, well, she died because she started eating meat again. It wasn't because she was vegan or vegetarian. And I think that saved me that, that, um, ego, you know, for, for not wanting people to blame it on the way I was eating for like the three years before, I think that saved me because I went ahead and had some, some egg, some eggs. And I remember feeling amazing after that. Um, and, uh, after, after that day, I think it was an egg and cheese sandwich. My blood pressure did go down immediately after eating that, like it calmed my body so much that it is still high, but it wasn't that high, high that I couldn't even function. And it was like scary, like just a stroke waiting to happen. Um, from there, I did have some salmon and I, I kept meat at a minimum because I did still believe, well, this isn't good, even though it, it made me feel better. I still didn't believe that it was something healthy to have in, in my diet. Um, 
And I guess like I spent like two years after that, maybe a year and a half, two years, just believing that I just need to lose more weight. So working on that, working on trying to lose more weight. And it was kind of like this, like purgatory phase, because I feel like I wasn't doing as bad as I was when I was vegan, but I wasn't doing as well as I am now. And I was having like scary episodes during that time that, you know, really just scared the crap out of me. And all through this time, I am still having elevated blood pressure and chest pains. Um, so I guess I can fast forward to me hitting another rock bottom where I, I just was not eating enough and I was over-exercising because like I said, I thought I just need to lose more weight and I can fix these issues. And I just had this day that I was walking, doing like my third bout of cardio for the day. And I just felt like laying down in the street because I was so tired, so exhausted and just feeling like I just can't go on. And I remember that night, this is, let me give a date. So to give you an idea of when this is in history, it, this was like February, 2020. Cause I remember it was right around the time the pandemic was, was happening. Um, and, uh, I remember going to bed that night and just asking myself, okay, body, what do you need? And the answer that came into my head was I need more food and I need rest. Um, and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to listen, you know, that's going to help me feel better. That's what we'll do. But there was like a wedding coming up and a beach vacation coming up. And I was like, well, I don't want to get fat just yet. So maybe we can slow this down. So I tried to do like a little bit of a reverse dieting thing um, for a couple months there. But of course, the wedding ended up getting canceled. So I didn't need to fit into that dress. And um, after we went to the beach in May, I just kind of let the floodgates open. And I was eating anything and everything I wanted. It was Pop-Tarts, bagels, um, ice cream in the morning. And this was, a lot of this was influenced by the intuitive eating movement. Um, And I'm sure there's some listeners that, that have heard about that, but it's pretty much like you eat whatever you want, whatever your soul desires. Don't worry about your health. Just eat anything at any time. Good luck. And, um, God bless you. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. I, at the time, I mean, it sounded amazing, you know, Oh, okay. So I'm just going to eat whatever I want. And all of a sudden I'm not going to have issues with my blood pressure or these chest pains anymore. Any of my issues, they're all going to be solved because I'm being nourished by Reese's cup ice cream. Um, I could intuitively and, uh, eat gallons and gallons of that ice cream. Like, give me a break. If, if you can moderate, like, yeah. amazing. But but I, that would never work for me. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, looking back, I'm like, well, that's a really silly idea. But at the time, I thought this was the answer. Um, this nothing, nothing else was working. Yeah. Or I, I thought I, I thought I had tried everything. 
So one, um, one really interesting thing that probably was a benefit, like when I used to work back at the gym, we would use metabolic carts to measure people's metabolic rates. And of course, if you did what okay. you actually did, which is crash your metabolism by burning too many calories and then, you know, not eating enough and going on calorie restricted diets, well, you would recover, you, your metabolism would drop severely. And one really uncomfortable, but great way to get your metabolism back is to throw in a bunch of calorie bombs. And yeah, you're going to gain weight, but you can also start to mm. increase your metabolic rate. And so I wonder if you noticed that effect as well, like maybe your body temperature was coming up or you felt your energy was a little bit better, even though you were gaining weight and it sucked and was uncomfortable. At least that would be one thing in my mind that would be at least improving is your body finally getting enough energy and enough calories combined with the rest that, that it's interesting to think about. Yeah. You know, now that you mentioned it initially, I did feel like I had more energy, um, like for lifting weights in the gym. And I felt like I had gotten out of that fight or flight. And cause I feel like that, that was just a constant and I did feel a little bit more relaxed initially. And then as time went on, and this is only like a three month span as time went on, and there was like no stop to it. Like I felt like my hunger signals got all over the place. Like I was waking up in the middle of the night to make like Hawaiian roll sandwiches and just, just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, I got, I didn't have any energy. I was just in the bed eating all day and I stopped working out and I think I gained like 30 pounds and just, in just three months. Um, yeah. It, yeah, at least 30 pounds. Um, and my health started to take like a huge nosedive again. Um, and so, like I said, I was in bed all the time, just eating and watching TV. And one day a recommended video popped up of, um, it was, uh, someone's channel, I think his name is Farage or Spirier. And the title of the video was vegan, the epitome of malnourishment. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Anyways, I watched this video and for the first time it occurred to me that I did a lot of damage to my body by not having, um, these animal products that veganism is really actually unhealthy because all that time before up to seeing that video, I had thought that, well, that's the ideal. That's the healthiest diet you can eat. And it's too bad. I couldn't stick to that. Um, from that video, I saw on his channel, he was doing interviews with ex vegans and this one interview, I feel like changed everything for me. It was a guy in his twenties that had been vegan. He was a runner and on the vegan diet, he had de developed hypertension and diabetes. Wow. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know that that was possible. Um, and you know, and I, and I started to dive into how can that be, how can that happen? And from there, I, um, YouTube is like, I don't know, an Oracle, they, <laughs> they recommended the low carb down under videos. And I completely binge watched that. And it was like months at a time. All I was doing was learning all about this, all about 
how low carb diets affect human physiology and um, from the low carb downer um, videos, I found Brian Linsky's podcast, Low Carb MD. And I wa- I listened to all of those episodes. Like I, I love music and I had completely stopped listening to music completely stopped watching anything fictional fictional on tv it was all about learning this and learning all about this um and uh so so obviously I immediately went on a low-carb diet um because I because I was hearing about people fixing like that guy on Sphere's video, he had fixed his diabetes, fixed his hypertension by doing something crazy called a carnivore diet. Um, so immediately I did go low carb and immediately my blood pressure got better. It was still elevated. It was like 130 over 85, but it was better. Much better. Um, yeah, yeah, much better. And I felt was feeling good. I felt like a normal person. Like I, like it was, it was like a veil slowly being lifted, um, from my eyes because things really started to change. Um, and so this is, that's like around August, 2020. Um, and I spent the rest of 2020 into like April, 2021, going lower carb by like April 21, I was more keto. I think the only thing in my diet other than meat was like coconut chocolate. Um, I had maybe some other things, but, but it was very, very few plant foods. And, um, so that June, 2021, I was driving my kids to North Carolina to spend some time with my mom and the entire trip, it's about a six hour drive. I did nothing but listen to the, um, meet our ex success stories. So back to back, I'm listening to these. And by the time I touched ground in North Carolina, I was like, that's it. I'm trying carnivore. This is the next step. I just, you know, I, I want to try it. Cause I, I, and the blood, the blood pressure had gotten better. The chest pains had eased some on a low carb diet, but it wasn't, I, I wasn't experiencing full remission of these things. Um, and so it was June 20th and I was like, that's it. I'm a carnivore now. I'm going to try this out. Three weeks from there, I got my first normal blood pressure reading. It was 117 over 75 and I was in disbelief. Um, and I, I thought, okay, well it's, you know, this is like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, okay, well, this is just a dip, you know, it's going to go back up. It can't, it just can't be that simple. Okay. But it was, it, it never, it never shot back up. And it was like this huge, like relief, but like, I was angry. Cause I was like, why didn't, why didn't, when I was in 11th grade, why wasn't the doctor like, well, your blood pressure is kind of elevated. Maybe you should cut out some carbs. This can help your, your situation. You know, why did I have to go through all these years, poorly controlled, high blood pressure, medication was ineffective. Weight loss was ineffective. All this cardio was ineffective. And these are the things when you go online and you say, how can I lower my blood pressure? This is what they're recommending. Why is it not the first thing? Cut out your carbs. Yeah, so stupid. Um, so dumb. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and after those three weeks, I was like, okay, well, that's it. I'm carnivore now. If this is what I need to do to live. Then I'm going to do it. And I tell people it's like the, the grand scale of the, would you rather game? And my, would you rather is, would you rather live a healthy life or and never be able to eat pizza again? Or would you rather like eat pizza and all these foods that actually don't make you feel good anyways, but die when you're like 35 and you know, you know, which one I'm choosing. So that was amazing. And then in the second month, that's when I experienced that because going carnivore, it was like, okay, well, then I started to have a few days in between where I didn't feel any sensations in my chest, any chest pains. And then the second month, that's when it was like, oh, that's gone too. That's for real. You know, whatever, whatever was happening in here that had me absolutely terrified for my life, this is gone too. And it's all because I'm eating the most unhealthy, disgusting, slovenly food on earth. I'm eating meat. I'm eating meat and butter. And it's that simple. Um, and I, I wasn't even on social media for a while, but after seeing how great I was feeling and that I, I feel like I literally came back from the dead. I feel like I was dead before dead dying. I feel like I am literally back from the dead. And I remember just feeling like I'm living, like this is how people are supposed to feel. I'm alive. Um, and so I started an Instagram. So I was like, people need to know about this. Um, I've got to share this. And, um, because I needed to know this years ago. And so sharing my story, if there's somebody out there, which now I am getting messages on Instagram of people, young people like me that have had similar issues with their blood pressure, telling me that they tried this out because they heard it worked for me and it works for them. I mean, that is absolutely priceless. It makes my whole, my whole day when I get a message like that. We are now going to hear another story. This is Sarah Kleiner, who is known as the carnivore yogi on social media, especially Instagram. And she also has a wonderful podcast named the carnivore yogi podcast. I would really definitely look her up. She was one that did have to switch from a vegan vegetarian lifestyle to a more carnivorous approach to recover her health. Um, but I thought this was a really interesting story to include as well due to the high prevalence of plant-based diet recommendations in the yoga world. And I'm really happy for Sarah that she was able to find a better way. And I'm able to, I mean, really create a business around teaching people that the, the narrative of plant-based diets in the yoga community couldn't be further from the truth. So let's hear her story now. Okay. So going back to the training, um, ironically today I've trained a few clients and two of them have gone through teacher training as well. And I asked both of them and got the same answer. So I'm going to ask you as part of that training, don't they ask you to go very highly plant-based or vegetarian vegan for kind of spiritual reasons as you're going through the teacher course? They didn't necessarily do that, which I really appreciated. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but you know, it was kind of like a thing in the group. It's like everyone, and I was doing it too. I was, I was doing vegetarian and vegan for a couple of years. Um, and so I was bringing my, my sprouted mung beans and, you know, it was crazy because I would eat lunch at teacher training and I would just have the worst gas in the afternoon. And I would be just mortified because I'm in 
a closed room with people training and I'm like, oh my God, my stomach is going to freaking go (laughs) at some point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty, it's pretty common, I guess, that people experience that. Wow. So, so when did you start to realize that that way of eating wasn't necessarily working so well for you? Oh, believe it or not, it was one of my teachers from teacher training that I stayed in contact with. I'm still in contact with him today. He's been teaching for, I want to say like 30 years now. It's amazing. Um, Cause you don't really meet people that have been teaching that long, but uh, I was still in contact with him and I was actually taking an advanced training at the time. Cause I had already been teaching for a couple years and I guess that I just looked really bad in this training. It was a five day intensive training, all about breathing, pranayam. And he took me aside and was like, Sarah, you do not look good. (laughs) He's like, you have zero muscle. Your hair is thinning. Like, are you okay? You do not look good. I'm just being honest with you. And he was like, I see what you're trying to do with the meat thing. Like, I know what you're trying to do. I've seen it before it's not for you. This, you need some animal protein because you're not well. And I had shoulder injuries that would not heal no matter what I did. I had cranial sacral massage, chiropractic, and my shoulders would not heal. They were just constantly inflamed and in pain. And he's like, yeah, your injuries aren't going to heal. This is going to keep getting worse. You've got to eat animal protein. And he really broke down ahimsa, which is what we talk about in yoga, the non-violence and non-harming. And he said, that comes to you first. There is a way to eat sustainably. There is a way to get beef from a good source, which now I have some great connections, thank goodness. But he's like, this this is what you're doing is just really bad for you. Wow. You've been really brave and vulnerable to post some of those pictures. I've been going through your Instagram account and I've seen you at different stages in your life. And it, it, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I feel like I've been like 15 different people in my life. You kind of have. Like who's this, who's this 20 year old that kind of looks like really inflamed and a little overweight. And then who's this 31 year old that is like a ghost. It's, it's so crazy. The transformation. Yeah. I mean, I, I was overweight for most of my life, to be honest with you. I was always overweight. I was always the fat kid. I was 220 pounds in high school. Um, and after I had my daughter, I was like 235 pounds. I've lost a hundred pounds, three separate times in my life. That's incredible. uh, it's it's crazy. I have it's kept the hundred pounds off for the last like thirteen years now. Since after I had my daughter, I've kept all the weight off, but um, for the most part. But yeah, uh, before then, it was like lose a hundred pounds. Like yeah, so I've always struggled with my weight, and then you know I kind of bounced the other way after I had my daughter. I got really skinny, and then I was plant based vegan, and I was also really depressed and going through all this grief, and I just was. Deathly. I was like so skinny. I couldn't even fit into like a size zero, which wow. was bizarre to me. That's yeah. crazy. Interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm always curious to hear about um, your experience inside the vegan vegetarian community, especially in the context of, of yoga. What was, what were they like? What is that like? You know, it's just so weird how they talk. It's like, Oh, we just want to be clean and eat clean. And and we say that too. I think we, the eating clean thing is just kind of like, uh, it gets old after a while. Cause it's like, what the hell does that even mean? Right. Um, but there was a lot of like woo woo, um, (laughs) kind of stuff in the vegan world. A lot of cleanses. I did a lot of juice detoxes. It was like, your body doesn't need to detox 24 freaking hours a day. Your body doesn't, you can go on a detox. And now what I know about detox, it's like, it shouldn't take you longer than like at the most six months to do an actual like serious detox, but people doing vegan, they're like five, six, seven years in, they're like, Oh, you're detoxing. I'm like, (laughs) 
at this point you have a health problem and you're not actually detoxing. So there's uh, just a lot of like weird, you know, it was, it was weird. <laughs> huh, interesting. Well, we were going to bring on a celery juice detox sponsor, but you just ruined that for us. So thanks a lot. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so, so did you ever feel like there was a spiritual connection to your food? Like when you were eating some of those plant foods, did you ever feel like there was that kind of life energy connection to the things you were eating? I mostly just felt really tired, mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just, I did feel really tired a lot and like, I could almost never really get full. Um, I just had to eat all the time and I was still really skinny. Like that was the cool thing for me. Cause I was always a volume eater. I loved to just eat a lot of food, obviously. And being vegan, I could just eat a lot of food and I would never gain any weight. Mm. Um, but I was always cold. I was always tired and I never was full. So there was definitely no, uh, spiritual connection with my food. Mm. I'm glad you brought up the cold thing. That's something I have to point out to people a lot. And it's pretty ubiquitous out there that people tend to feel really cold in their hands and feet, especially their extremities, like when they are taking in too few calories and they're crashing their metabolism. Exactly. Mm. I had no idea. Yeah. And wow. I was, I was like, I thought I'm just always cold and my husband and my daughter are just weird. And, <laughs> and now I'm always warm and I always like, Oh, turn up the air, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, we can totally relate. So yeah. when, when was it that, um, you were convinced that you needed more animal proteins, uh, in your diet? When, when did that kind of come about? I believe it was 2014 okay. that that came about. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's been many years ago now, gotcha. but was yeah. there any kind of spiritual, um, dissonance, like a cognitive dissonance of like, I, I do want to respect life and, you know, live this kind of yogi culture, but bring in more animal products, knowing that animals are, I mean, animals are going to die regardless, but animals are going to die if I eat meat. Was that difficult for you? Um, not necessarily. It was more, I don't know. It, it was, it was weird. I was afraid to eat meat. I was afraid it was going to make me fat. I was afraid it was going to, um, make me sick because I heard so many vegans talking about going back to meat and getting really sick. And I just, I was kind of just terrified of just the meat thing. And then I felt like an imposter, you know, for a little while there, just like, oh, I'm this teacher and I'm supposed to be, you know, vegan or vegetarian and I'm just an imposter, but, it, and I felt bad. I just couldn't make it work for myself. No matter I had a purse full of supplements, like there was nothing I could do that would make it work, mm. you know? Did you lose any friends or social connections when you left that, that community? No, not really. Cause I, I wasn't like so engrossed in it that like all my friends were vegan vegetarian, you know? Um, I was more like a fringe person, so I didn't really lose any friends over mm. it. I just, it was more of like an internal, like I felt bad about it kind of thing. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. So that's 2014. So kind of more of a mixed diet at that point. Yeah, I went more of a mixed diet and um, we got influenced by Dr. Walls. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Yeah, of Terry course. Walls. Yeah. Love her. Mm. I would. I want to get her on my podcast. I'm going to try. We'll see. I might not be big enough for her, but um, <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing. And her TED Talk from, I think it was like 2012, really changed the way that I thought about food and how food could actually really be medicine. And so I started doing, uh, trying to do a little bit more of a paleo approach in 2014. That's really um, where I started swinging over towards. And uh, I, pr I pretty much kept that up. You know, I would try different things and different diets and things, but I pretty much stayed more in the paleo realm with like occasional junk food binges and like going off the rails every now and then. But I, that's pretty much where I stayed um, after 2014. Gotcha. And, um, you noticed some of those physical elements, did some of those resolve, um, immediately when you went paleo or did that take a little bit more time? 
it took a lot more time. And then also because I wasn't always compliant, you know, yeah. and I would eat chocolate and, you know, ice cream and things like that, that I shouldn't necessarily be eating, you know, every, every now and then every couple of weeks or so. So I don't know that I gave it like a really good solid chance, um, until the end, until I got closer to carnivore than I did. But, gotcha. uh, back then when I was just starting it, I didn't really give it like a solid chance. Mm. And I'm assuming, I mean, it's really difficult to be in a family and be making your own food and then be making different food for everybody else. And so what did, did your family eat the same way that you did and what did they notice? Yeah, they ate the same way that I did. I mean, my daughter is from the moment she got her autism diagnosis, she was gluten-free, dairy-free. You know, we tried to cook everything. Like I've been cooking. People always bitch about all the cooking they have to do. And I'm like, I've just been cooking for years. I'm used to it. You know, even when I was vegan, I was still making her grass-fed beef burgers every day. And I would, I didn't know any better. I'd fill them with spinach. I'd do like a steamed spinach grass-fed beef burger and she would eat those. Um, she kind of did a little bit more of a carnivore approach, honestly, uh, uh, because she just really liked the beef. She, so naturally she was selecting those things. Yeah, she was. And you know, the crazy thing, this is kind of a side tangent. I have the most messed up teeth. Like I've had braces and they're still screwed up and I didn't really eat a lot of meat growing up. I didn't really eat a very good diet growing up. I was a kid of the nineties of like lots of cereal. We'd have cereal three meals a day, you know, like Skin I just milk. didn't have the nutrients. Yeah. Cereal and milk. And I had horrible eczema until I left the house and quit drinking the milk. But like my daughter has straight, beautiful teeth and a nice, beautiful jaw. Like I don't think she even needs braces. And I was, my husband and I both had to have braces. And the only thing I can think of is like, I have been so psycho about her diet since day one of her diagnosis of just trying to give her the most high quality grass fed meats and, um, you know, healthy, you know, vegetables and things like that. And just try to keep her on that path. And I think it actually has really helped her as she's grown up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked to a lot of dental health experts and we absolutely 100% believe that that was the case. We both believe that like, uh, same as you, like we grew up eating the same foods and red vines and, you know, granola bars and all that bullshit, like falling asleep in class and like always feeling terrible. And, And yeah, I mean, we've got crooked teeth and they could have been a lot better. We truly believe in that. That's crazy. Um, yep. with, with your daughter specifically, what other things did you notice with her behavior? Uh, you know, when she is more what I noticed when she would get the foods that were processed and were not good than what I noticed without those. Um, that's kind of how she is. She's, she's pretty, uh, she's pretty severely autistic. She's brilliant. Um, but she definitely has, is very severely affected by autism And so when she's eating her normal diet, she's herself, but when she's not, she can get, her behaviors can get really out of control. Um, And it's usually like, okay, what did she get a hold of? You know, usually I look straight to the food first. We really appreciate Sarah and all of her work over at Carnivore Yogi. I made sure to include the last part in that episode, how her autistic daughter would just absolutely crave grass-fed beef and attack it whenever she could, just like it was candy. I thought that was really important, and it's definitely something that we notice with a lot of the people that we work with and our clients and and their kids and the things that they gravitate towards. We're going to step away from the stories for just a bit and go to Dr. Anthony Chafee, who is known as the Plant-Free MD. He has a wonderful podcast as well called the Plant-Free MD 
podcast. We interviewed him on episode 261 and episode 332 of Boundless Body Radio. And we're going to take a brief clip into that first episode from uh, episode 261, where he explains why he recommends that people do not eat plants at all. You can take from this what you will, but I thought this is important to include in the discussion. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you as a plant-free MD to talk really truly about the harms of eating plants and have like a really comprehensive, um, you know, kind of a guide as to why plants, you know, are so prevalent in our diets and why maybe they should or shouldn't be. But I would just like to talk about yeah. your story and how you first came across this. You came across this quite a while ago, uh, understanding yeah. that the plants really are not that great for us. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's my my approach to this as well. And that's why, you know, I call my podcast, the plant free MD, because it's not, it's not just about eating meat, you know, that that's obviously a big part of it, but the main thing is not eating all these other things that actually cause harm. So, you know, I talked to, when I was first talking to, to people about this, you know, they, they would say, Oh yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, that makes sense, but you know, I don't mind eating salad. So, you know, I'll just keep eating salad. And the point is, it's not that you don't, you don't have to eat salads. You don't have to eat vegetables to get all your nutrition from, you know, because you can get all your nutrition from meat, which is true. But in fact, you don't want to eat the salad. The salad is actually bad for you. So it's not just like, oh, hey, you don't, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It's like, you shouldn't do it. Um, the reason being, yeah, exactly. The reason being is that, you know, plants are living organisms and they, they want to stay living organisms. All living things have a defense down to single celled organisms. And while animals can run away or fight back, plants can't. And so they have to use different means to, dis to defend themselves against predation. And they have all sorts of different, different ways of doing that, which are very, very interesting. But one of the main ones is that they just use poisons. They are just toxic to animals and insects. You know, caffeine was developed as, as an insecticide and it's actually, you know, a, you know, a neurotoxin and can cause seizures in people that are prone to ep epilepsy. So, you know, the, these things actually do cause harm to us and they're supposed to, you know, you know, plants don't want to be uh, eaten by and large. Obviously there, there are exceptions in symbiotic relationships uh, with certain animal species, but that's how these things have developed. And so some people say, well, you know, like, oh, this plant doesn't want to be eaten. So it uses poison. It's like, oh, but that cow doesn't want to be eaten either. Oh, shush. That doesn't, that doesn't meet with the narrative. I saw some uh, guy say that specifically. Well, the point is, is that the cow can defend itself as well. It just has different defenses because it's mobile, because it can use kinetic, you know, kinetic uh, defenses. It doesn't need to be poisonous. It's flesh doesn't have to be poisonous to the lion that eats it where, you know, a eucalyptus leaf does, you know? So I, I mean, I learned in seventh, seventh or eighth grade biology that plants and animals are an evolutionary arms race plants becoming more and more poisonous. So less and less animals can eat them so that they can survive and thrive or else they go extinct, which most species of life have gone extinct at this point. So everything that's come through the gauntlet of evolution is battle hardened, including the plants. And then animals, you know, also evolving to, uh, to uh, and adapting to being able to break down specific poisons safely so that they can eat a specific plant. And then most thing, other things can't eat that. So that that's, they're conserved resource. They don't have to compete for resources. It's much like, you know, pandas, koalas, you know, giraffes and, and, uh, and everything else, you know, these things eat plants, but they eat very specific plants because they can eat that plant. It's safe to eat that plant. They eat other, other plants. They'll die. People know this. This is common knowledge. Almost every plant on earth is quote unquote inedible, meaning that it will kill you 
if you eat a small amount of it. Well, then we have edible plants. The only d- distinction there is that they don't kill you very quickly, but that doesn't mean that they don't use poisons. That doesn't mean that they don't use toxins. They do. It's just that we have some inbuilt inbuilt defenses to these things, but we don't have immunities. It's not like cows and grass, you know, where a cow can eat and there's different kinds of grasses and, and some cows can't, you know, and cows can't eat certain kinds of grasses. So when you're eating your, your evolved plant, then you can do that. But if your species hasn't evolved to eat a specific plant, that plant is bad for you. So, you know, we learn this, we actually teach this to kids and anybody, and people say, oh, why don't we know this? Or, or maybe they call bullshit on it. You ask anybody who studied botany, even taking one class on it, they'll be like, oh yeah, actually that's true. Study horticulture, one class on horticulture. Oh yeah, no, that's actually true. You know, all plants, you know, use some form of toxin. That is a rule across the plant and fungus kingdoms. Just period. That that is hard fact. That is hard science. Like it's that that's really not up for debate. That that is a thing that exists in nature. And just because someone doesn't know that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means they need to read more. And I encourage everyone to do that. Just go to an introductory botany book. It is there. Okay. Study, you know, take a book on horticulture. It's there. So when I was in, in college at the University of Washington, I was taking cancer biology. But I always knew I wanted to be a doctor and I was always interested in those sorts of classes. So I was taking cancer biology and we were sort of going back over this. The fact that plants use poisons, you know, to stop predation, to deter predation. And this is a cancer biology class. So, so we were looking at it in uh, from a cancer perspective. And so we were looking at the different amount of carcinogens that were in, you know, uh, plants that we w- we would eat on a, on a regular basis. And we learned that like Brussels sprouts, like the most reviled vegetable of all from all kids, there's a good reason for that. They had, at the time, we had already discover- discovered 136 separate human carcinogens just in Brussels sprouts. And mushrooms had over 100. Spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, you name it, everything. Had, we were given a list, literally page after page of all the different plants that you've ever eaten. And every single one, there wasn't a single one that had less than 60 carcinogens in it. And so this is where that bitter taste comes from. This is why kids hate the taste of vegetables, you know, when they first, when they're first eating solids, because they're, they're much more closely attuned to their genetics. And so that bad taste, that's a very good indication that there's something bad there for you, a bitter taste, a, a bad taste. That is your, your brain and tongue are sophisticated machines. And that is their way of telling you there is something bad in there for you, bad in there. So if something is bitter, it is bad for you, right? This is why medicine's bitter. Well, what is medicine? Medicine is a poison that just causes more benefit than harm in certain circumstances. But just like you're not going to take antibiotics every single day, you shouldn't eat, you know, you know, uh, broccoli or, or or celery or whatever every single day. Maybe there's some medicinal purposes for that, but maybe not. But whether or not they do, those medicinal purposes are only of uh, of a net benefit when you're sick and when you're unwell and that's treating you for something. So we were quite blown away by this, obviously, as, as I think everyone I tell that to is just like, that can't be real. I thought the same thing. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? We thought, I thought it must be joking. You must just be screwing with us. Everyone was literally looking around wildly, like what's going on? Like who's, who, who's in on the joke? I was looking for like a TA somewhere in the back of the class that's just sitting there like smirking, like oh, he does this all the time. There was no one. And it slowly sort of dawned on us that like, Jesus, this guy, this guy's, this guy's serious. And, you know, and, uh, and I remember like just thinking in my head, I was like, you know, but 
but vegetables are still good for you though, right? And he just looked at us and he's just like, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. So I was like, right, screw plants. And I was just, I just stopped eating them uh, right away. And I, and you know, I went to the store. I just, everything was a plant. Everything had plant product. Everything had some sort of product in it that came from plants, be it, you know, grains or seeds or vegetables or fruit, sugar, obviously everything came from a plant. And so I just ended up just getting eggs, meat, and milk because those were the only things I could find that didn't have plants. And so I ended up inadvertently becoming a carnivore uh, for several years, at least five. And I was playing, you know, uh, professional rugby at the time. I was, I was, you know, traveling all over the U S and Canada and, and then internationally. And I was, I was just, most of that time was, I was a pure carnivore and I just never felt better. And I've never performed better and I've never played better. And I've never, I've never had such, you know, exercise tolerance. And it was, I've never been able to push myself so hard. I've never recovered so fast, except until now when I'm, when I'm doing it again and my body does the same thing. I'm 20 years older and I feel just as good, you know, and, uh, you know, I don't have the time anymore to dedicate, uh, like I did before I was training, you know, sometimes anywhere from six to even 10 hours a day every day. And so I was getting in absolutely insane shape. I don't have the time for that anymore, but when I do, I can, I can push myself much further than I could before. And I recover nearly instantly and I get much more benefit out of that. We are now going to hear from one more yogi. We are going to listen to the story of Sucha Kumar, who is going to appear on a podcast on a future episode of Balanced Body Radio that will be coming up very soon. And she has a really interesting story of how difficult it can be once you get wrapped up in this way of living, how encompassing it can be. She actually formed her business called Live Bliss all around plant-based diet retreats. So not only was a plant-based diet and a vegan diet something that she did personally for her health, which she eventually had to back away from, as you will hear, but this was her entire business and her entire social life. And so as you can imagine, very, very difficult to get out of that situation and, and reconcile you know, the facts and everything that's going on with what you're doing professionally. I thought this was a fascinating story. So let's hear her story now. My initial interest in the um, vegan diet or more plant-based approach was just, you know, for sure, all of the media that's kind of misinformation um, put on us as far as like, you know, just black and white. If you eat meat, that's bad for your health. If you eat meat, it's bad for the environment and all of that. And first and foremost, my biggest interest was the environment. And specifically before I learned about regenerative, it was very like sustainability focused. So that's initially what really drew me in and gave me the motivation to commit to like such a strict vegan diet. So what things did you notice with your health? Initially, there's that kind of period of time where going plant-based is so much better than the crap that most people are eating in a standard American diet. It sounds like your family was eating somewhat healthily before, but what health benefits did you notice from really doing what you said, committing to a vegan diet? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, my parents were definitely on the healthy side. They probably didn't have the education as far as like having protein to be such a big part of our nutrition. So that's probably why I was maybe like having cravings and different things growing up. And I had kind of some binge eating throughout high school and early college too, which we can get into. But um, throughout 
high school, um, I was like drawn to more of the pescatarian diet and then like eventually got into the vegan diet. Um, as far as health, like initially, and this is like years before, before I really was understanding and feeling like I was being health. Um, just like a lot of us, it was very like appearance and physique driven. So for me, I just really wanted to cut weight. And before I even understood what being fit means, like for a lot of women, the stereotypical thing that we aspire to be was like not even being fit, it was being skinny. So at that time, I was just like fighting my genetics. And I was like, I want to be skinny. I want to do everything I can. And that either means cutting calories or when I heard all this information about meat being bad, I was like, all right, of course I want to cut that out. And coincidentally, even though like really good quality red meat and other types of meat is some of the most healthiest foods in the world, that same meat that is incorporated into the standard American diet in forms of like burgers and other processed meats and foods that ends up being like some of the most unhealthiest foods. So for me, I was like, Oh, I'm taking out meat. I'm taking out all this unhealthy food. And I definitely saw results as far as weight loss. Um, but as far as like negative effects, it wasn't like really clicking to me until like two, three years in where I was like, oh, wow, like this is not really making a difference with my skin. I saw a picture of myself and I think I was only like 20 or 21 years old, but I had like a lot of space in between my hair. Like you could see my scalp and I was just like, am I just losing hair because of stress? Wow. Um, a lot of bloating that I just normalized. Like I just didn't even realize. I thought that was just a given. And I was like, I'm taking proper, um, you know, stools in the morning. Like that's fine. But it didn't occur to me that the bloating was not normal. Um, gut issues. And then also like also coming out of that, I realized like even like libido and sex drive and just hormonal health was really, really lacking at that time. Wow. That's so interesting. And and with, with veganism in particular, there's, there's this huge community, right? You feel like you have a shared purpose. You're doing the right thing for yourself, the right thing for the planet. Like you mentioned, what a beautiful thing to have in, in hindsight, you can look back and say like, wow, the, the group of people I was with was maybe also suffering with a lot of the same things. So not only did you start your company, which was an Initially plant-based, you yeah. also were part of that community for so long and setting up your retreats. And but besides that, you spent time at a supplement company that was also plant-based. And so is it something you can look back on and say, like, wow, this is a cohort of people all trying the same thing, feeling this amazing, amazing sense of commitment and passion and suffering. People very emotional or suffering with all the same health issues. Is that something you noticed? A hundred percent. So like for sure, I, I don't like go so far to extreme and be like, you are the people that you're surrounded with. But for sure, if you have like a motivation and a purpose, the people that you're around, if you're able to share that, it's like more motivation. So it's, I mean, I experienced most of this as a chunk in San Diego. That's where I feel like I really became an adult when I moved here at 19 and I was starting to really get all into the vegan lifestyle and also fitness lifestyle. But when you have so much of that around you, it's just like, you would feel it's harder to even think of a life otherwise. So I remember when I was vegan, I was like, this is the lifestyle for me and I'm going to be like this forever. And I'm really cautious to also monitor myself, even though I've experienced carnivore and animal-based approach and primal eating, I'm not limiting myself and being like, this is for me and I'll be all, although like just based on my 
studies and ancestral health, which is a totally different approach to what I even dove into as a vegan or plant-based person. Um, that gives me a lot more meaning and insight into why this diet is working so well for me and so many others. But yeah, a hundred percent to answer your question. Like when you're around those people, not only does it feel more uh, motivational, but those are like the friend groups. So at that time it was like all my friend groups, we would just all, it was just a given. We were all going to go to a vegan restaurant, which makes it so easy. I would find it hard to like, say, I want to go to a barbecue place right now and then still have those friends who are open to it. If they can't literally eat anything or vice versa now where I go to a vegan restaurant, I'm like, I just, I don't want to go. <laughs> you know, There's like no reason for me to go. So um, yeah, it's difficult. And then there's definitely like that guilt and um, shaming. And I didn't realize like how some of them could be pretty cruel. Like I didn't realize how intense that community could be after coming out of it. Wow. No, I, that's a story we've heard over and over and over. And even us, you know, we don't have a big show or a big following or whatever. And we put stuff out on YouTube and I get the, the, the funniest comments from people that they don't even bring anything. They just say like, you're stupid or this is dumb or your guest is dumb. And it's like, what didn't you like? Let's, let's have a discussion. What, what can we talk about? And it, it never goes anywhere. It's just like insults. And it's so funny. We interviewed um, Leah Keith, who wrote The Vegetarian Myth, a wonderful book. And she described near her house, there was a bakery. And every afternoon, all the vegans would gather there at 2 p.m., you know, a few hours after a meal. They'd all be starving. And they would buy these, like, sugar cookies with more sugar on top of them. And yeah. emotionally, like, you could be in there at any time when, the, when they were there. And at least one person in the store, in the bakery, would be crying at any given time. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I just remember like, even though, you know, at the same time that I went vegan was the same time that I was like really getting into the fitness industry and 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 studying macros and studying bodybuilding and just like really, you know, being all about it. But um, I would track everything and I try to track calories and fats and proteins, especially the proteins. And then I've always been on the like lower carb side. I've never been a big grains and rice person, but that was a struggle being plant-based because I was essentially trying to do a little bit more of a keto version of plant-based. And I'm like, how are you going to do that without like overdosing on nuts and seeds essentially? But I was always like, it wasn't like stomach full, like my stomach would be full and bloated, but there was this like never ending, like hunger for something that my body was craving. And then I always tell the story, but when I had a bite of my first ribeye steak, I was like, I feel like I ate for the first time. Like it was crazy. Everybody says you can just feel the lights coming on in the brain all of a sudden. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. 100%. If you are able to have a productive and meaningful conversation with somebody who practices veganism or a plant-based diet, that you have to be careful because the, the conversation switches so quickly. Like we'll, we'll talk about health and then all of a sudden it's about planetary health. And it's like, well, whoa, 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 we can talk about that, but that's a different thing. Or then it goes to ethics and it's like, okay, that's a fair conversation also, but that's a different thing. They, they jump around to try to confuse the conversation. So I want to be mindful when I ask you this question in that 2019 podcast that I heard, you said that at the time the, the animal agriculture was really destructive and you had, you had some studies that you could back it up. And, and again, like if I ask a vegan today what they think about that, it's just going to turn into an argument. The most productive way I can learn about those kinds of things is asking former vegans. It, the conversation never got to that point. But what, what would you have said at the time? Like what were some of your arguments to say, like, you know, animal agriculture is terrible for the planet? 
Yeah. So are you asking as far as like, what would I have said as like an animal based person right now? No, to... back, back then when you were plant-based, okay. what were, what yeah. were some of those scientific arguments you would have had? Right. So it's really interesting because now looking back, I'm like, wow, my approach to eating a plant-based lifestyle was way more like emotional and just based on headlines versus now where it's like way more based on science and, and truly humbling myself. Like it's so easy to get, um, like clinging onto an identity. And so to a certain point, like, um, being plant-based or even being carnivore, like a lot of it, those labels are going to be really focused on like your identity. And so, um, it's, it's hard to like, let yourself be humble enough to like, um, step away from that and then be okay with it. But I think at that time when I was plant-based, I was so attached to it. Also running a business that was focused on plant-based eating. And then everyone around me that I felt like, I think I've said this out loud. I was like, I feel like even though I don't want to be plant-based or vegan, um, like eating vegan all the time, I feel like this is the sacrifice I have to make for the earth. And this is like how I can create strides in the community by like setting this example, even if I don't want to do it all the time. And it was like this big, like obligation that it felt like, but as far as arguments, I remember specifically, I had someone who messaged me as far as my Instagram post where I'd share a lot about plant-based eating. And they were like, Hey, I really appreciate like, um, you know, everything you share, great points, love the content, super polite. But they were like, did you know that, you know, um, there's an alternative to like cows can actually be really beneficial to the earth. And to me, and now I understand why a lot of plant-based vegan people have this mindset. It was like, I just didn't want to hear it. Like anyone who even triggered or like challenged my belief system in plant-based being the way I was so triggered by it. But so I was just like, I don't want to talk to you or like, I don't want to hear it at all. I was like, definitely not like a militant vegan, but I was just very closed off to hearing anything otherwise, because obviously as a human being, you have these beliefs for some people, it's religion or diet or a way of exercise or whatever. And when you believe in it so much, and when you feel like it's like healing or something that you're a part of, um, you know, you don't want that to be challenged or taken away from you. So, um, with those studies, I mean, obviously there's all those like media studies on red meat being bad, but now looking back, I'm like, all those studies are based on meat being in the form of like a hamburger with fries or hot dogs or processed meats. So they aren't even really valid studies. Um, so uh, there's that book called The Big Fat Surprise by Nina Tischoltz, I believe is how you say her last name. Yeah, and that amazing. was like, yeah, that was like a big um, mind opener as far as studies go. But yeah, I mean, as far as like responses back, like I don't even think I had something really scientific. It was based on media. It was just like, Red meat's bad for the environment and it's bad for your health. And, um, you know, even agriculture, like it is true that factory farmed animals that are crowded together, that's horrible. It's like horrible for the animal and horrible for the environment. It's just, you don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know there was an alternative to regenerative and same with plants. It's like, now I'm like, same with plants, like you can get organic regenerative plants or fruits if you're still eating those from farmer's markets or wherever you're sourcing. But there's 
monocrop agriculture, which is just as bad, if not killing off more plant and animal species. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for that really thoughtful answer. And thank you for being so authentic and vulnerable about, you know, the, what you were thinking in the past and, and what you were thinking today. We already mentioned Lear Keith and she, she talked about like how it was so hard for her brain to, to wrap around the things that she didn't want to talk about. What about all the animals that die in agricultural fields, growing plants? What about all the insects? What about all the bacteria? What about the plants themselves? Plants are alive. Plants are smart as shit. Like they're amazing. And like, where, where, where does the killing start and stop? Like taking a cow, is that any different than killing a hundred mice? Like it's just, it's just whatever you want to wrap your head around and accept and be okay with. So I think that's a really interesting point. I want to know when, when was it the time that, that the kind of house of cards started to fall and you knew you needed to start to incorporate meat back in? Um, when was that? And what was that like for you? It was very accidental, but I also think it was very organic because for me, like I mentioned, I was always like environment focused and I've always had this pull towards like reconnecting myself and people around me back to our ancestral roots. So I was, this was about three years ago now, I had actually gone to India to do my 300 hour yoga teacher training. I also set a few months there. So I was also training Muay Thai in Thailand. And then I was like just living in India, spending time with family um, and teaching some yoga there. And at that time, um, especially in Thailand, it was like, uh, you know, morning training, evening training. It's like almost five hours of training a day. And in countries like Thailand and India and many other Asian countries, like rice is such a big part of their culture, but I didn't do rice. Like I, I just cannot, I was never able to eat such a big amount of grains. So I was really resorting to like veggies at that time, but there was also like, there wasn't like much tofu. Um, and if it was, it was like the spongy watery, like more natural kind, not like the kind that they sell here where it's like high protein tofu. And then I had brought some protein powder with me, but I was there for months and I was like, I'm not going to fill up my suitcase with all this protein powder. So I was kind of forced into like being face front and being like, the vegan fitness life you're living is artificial. Like all of the things you're eating is only available in a first world country. And like, not even just a first world country, there's like several states and cities in America that I've driven through where like all of these things are not available. It's like Southern California and big, like certain cities where a lot of these things are available because there's that vegan culture or fitness culture or whatever. So I was like, I had to put that in my forefront and I was like, so what do people eat? And that like led me to start asking myself, like, what is it in our primal roots? Like, how are we drawn to this? And then being in India, which is where my family originated from, they don't even have a lot of like lush green leaves or broccoli or Brussels sprouts. It's so humid there that those types of vegetables don't even survive. And all that I was taught was like, these green vegetables are like, you have to have them to have optimal health. And I'm like, but how does someone living here, how can they have optimal health if these vegetables like don't even exist naturally here? So in Thailand is where I like finally just had to give in because there's literally no other food options. So that's when I had found a like a cafe, a little 
like hole in the wall restaurant, such a small town there too, outside of Chiang Mai, Thailand, um, where I started having omelets. So eggs were the first thing that I incorporated back in. And I was feeling like so much skills, but it was really fueling me for like those really long days. And then in India, dairy and ghee is actually a big part of their culture. And in the small villages that I was at, I know here we have all those labels like pasteurized, ultra pasteurized, A2, raw, organic, like all that stuff, but you could almost like, if you're in a small village, you could probably trust that most of the stuff you're going to have is like raw organic and all of that. And you see the cows grazing in the grass. So, um, I started incorporating dairy very resistantly, but a lot of like ghee and more butter. And I was feeling fueled and great. And when I came back is when the pandemic hit, like right as I was coming back from travels and, to finish this transition off, I was spending a lot of time at home and I was like, just really wondering. And I was like, am I going to go back to eating strict vegan? And I was trying that for a while, but I was also just like, I just felt really curious. And I was like, I think I want to try like salmon. Like this is a food I grew up on that I really, really loved. Like I was really loving salmon and it was probably because of the fat and the omega three that I wasn't getting. That was like such a bioavailable source. I was incorporating some chicken, but wasn't still like a big fan of chicken. And then finally, um, like got a taste of like actual red meat. Cause I hadn't even ever had steak in my life until like age, uh, like 23, which is pretty crazy. Wow. That's amazing. Okay. I'm imagining this like railroad that has two trains like coming full speed ahead at each other. And one of them is like, not just your beliefs. It's your business. It's your life. It's all the people you know. And then you've got this other train heading towards it. That's like, this is what the reality is. This is the truth. How, what, how are you able to, to do that? We talked to several ex vegans and it's like, yeah, they had to leave the community and that was challenging enough. And they lost all their friends and people talked a lot of shit about them and said terrible things, but this is more than just that for you. This is your entire business. How, how are you handling this? Yeah. So one thing I will say now, looking back that I appreciate about myself. So I went to college for uh, like two years, but I actually didn't finish, but I did take a biological anthropology class and it was like the class that just lit me up the most. I did like probably the best in the class in that biological anthropology class. And I was like, so drawn to it to this day. I still like dive into the textbook, but the reason I bring that up is for the longest time, I didn't consider myself like a nerd or like someone who was into studies because I was kind of like that rebel Indian kid who wasn't like going to like the greatest university or anything. However, I've always loved like nerding out on these things that I'm like naturally interested in. So, um, basically, I mean, especially as I was transitioning to animal based, I was like, there's no way that I can just dive into this like blindfolded and just intuitively go into it. Although like we should really trust our intuition. So I was just ordering every single book, everything possible and listening to all of the podcasts, um, everything on YouTube, like YouTube was my best friend. And I was just trying to learn so much about, 
um, you know, the benefits of meat and how this could actually deliver nutrients to myself. Um, you know, and I was like really looking into the environment and I slowly was like picking up maybe, I think that's the beautiful thing about social media recommendations is I was like slowly picking up on this term regenerative agriculture, but it was still like, I mean, still so many people don't know what it is, but it was even more like rare, like two years ago or a year and a half ago. And I just was like, oh, this is so cool. Like grass fed finish. Like, what does that mean? And so I was really trying to dive into that and looking into companies to source from. And so the more research I did, I think that's what really allowed me to go from the extremes and gave me more life in transitioning. Um, I'll say one thing. I mean, the transition was hard because I've been open about it and really transparent about it in social media. Um, definitely. Like when I first started transitioning, I was like, do I feel comfortable putting this on my Instagram story? And then I slowly just put it, put it on there more. Cause I was like, this is my truth. Um, but I got some like pretty intense comments and feedback from people that like we claimed we were friends back in the day during the vegan time too. So definitely this process was like a huge sign of like who my real friends were and who I wanted in my community. But with that, every time someone would be like, this is really bad for your health or this is really bad for the environment or like you're horrible because you're doing these things. At first I took it personally. And then I was like, you know what? I was on speech and debate team throughout high school and college. Like this is my forte and I'm not just going to debate with you emotionally. I'm going to research it up. So I started queuing up like every response that I would get. I had a response. Like if someone talked about the China study or someone talked about whatever in the um, game game changers documentary or whatever, like I had have a clear scientific response of like, what, you know, what was my reasoning? And that process actually instilled a lot more conviction in my decision to eat this way. So that actually really helped, you know, that metaphor you gave of the trains, like almost coming full force towards each other. It felt challenging, but I was like in that awareness of like, this is building like who I am as a person. So it felt good. That's amazing. Yeah. I think the two of those things I I respect so much, first of all, that you did deep dive into the research. It must've been interesting to learn from like legit science and research and compare it with what you were learning before with like the bunk, you know, science, quote unquote science. It's just headlines and pictures and is so misleading and to have people coming after you the way that they did so hard in the beginning, that would almost be fuel to the fire for me to be like, wow, I don't really want to hang out with these people. I know people in the carnivore space can be dogmatic and they have certain ways that they view things, but I certainly have not seen a single carnivore that I can say that I've come across that has anything negative or bad to say, or hasn't been totally, totally helpful with anything I've needed or any questions that I've had. I think so too. I mean, like, I think people who are in the carnivore community to do something so extreme and against like what society has been pushing on us. I think they understand the community in general is that like, they probably each had to go through so much to finally get to carnivorism or animal-based eating. So I think they understand, uh, we can say we understand that like anyone who's even curious about their health or on their journey, they, if they're meant to, and if they're truly committed to like finding their truth, they will probably find a way into a more primal approach to their nutrition um, and not so rigid. I think like 
doing diets or, or like transitioning, it goes hand in hand to the inner work you're doing on yourself, as far as like awareness, ego, um, you know, letting go of identity and shedding like all of those like life things, even in spiritual terms that we talk about, I really think it's hand in hand with diets. Um, so that's why I like to even incorporate like the primal yogi component because yoga is so philosophical. It's not just a movement. And so in yoga, you can say the goal is something called moksha, which is freedom. And so if the goal of yoga is finding your freedom or finding your truth, then part of that is like going through these different diets or going through these like different communications with people. We are going to step away from our stories one more time to hear a brief clip from Dr. Ben Bickman from episode 30 of Balanced Body Radio. Dr. Ben Bickman is an insulin researcher out of BYU and is also the author of the wonderful book, Why We Get Sick. He is amazing. We love his work. And in this clip, he's going to briefly describe the difference between animal foods and plant foods as far as nutrient density goes and as far as absorbability goes. So let's hear from Dr. Ben Bickman. All of the best proteins, or or literally every protein, literally every protein comes with fat. And the best proteins for humans are undoubtedly the animal-based proteins. Uh, And I I do mean that very objectively, quantifiably. Animal proteins beat any plant protein um, in in the world. And, And that is eggs, meat, and dairy. They are the best protein sources for humans. This has been quantified. There's no, there should be no debate on that. Those all come with fat. And so my sentiment with regards to protein is eat it with fat. It's how it's supposed to be. Protein is not supposed to come alone. When we eat protein with fat, the, the combination of those two allows us to digest the fat, uh, sorry, to digest the protein better because of the fat that has been shown uh, and Protein and fat are more anabolic than protein alone. That was a fascinating study that had uh, people working out and they quantified the degree to which the muscles made new protein, had them, uh, in other words, got bigger um, with muscle protein. Then they had the people eat a load of protein, the best, which was egg white, and they measured protein um, growth, uh, muscle growth. Uh, And then they had them eat egg white with an egg yolk, which is this, what I consider a divine ratio of one to one of protein to fat by mass. And, and, the pro, and the muscles got bigger still than the protein alone. So as if you have, you know, when I imagine people listening to this and they're so interested in getting enough protein, which I applaud, I think that is good. We should be prioritizing protein. It's one of what I consider to be the pillars of a smart diet, but you must get it with fat. Don't artificially get protein alone. So I would even say, don't just scoop out a scoop of whey protein. That's not the way you're supposed to get it. If you are going to get whey protein from a supplement, which I think is fine, get it with fat. In fact, at the risk, I I, I am a little reluctant in stating this because I wouldn't want someone to think I, I'm anything but a scientist, but, but I am a little more than a scientist. It was my frustration with pure or, or heavily protein, skewed protein shakes as meal replacement shakes that I, in fact, designed my own. And, and I will just say this, anyone who wants to learn more, go to gethealth.com and health is spelled H-L-T-H. And, and basically, this was a meal replacement shake that was built on a pillar of one-to-one protein to fat. And so, you know, the best proteins, egg whites and whey, and that matched with uh, some of the best fats, uh, mostly from fruit fats, just because they're more stable. Um, and that was coconut and olive. 
mm. and a little bit of ghee. Awesome. Nevertheless, that's that little infomercial is done. But <laughs> when people focus on protein and fat, focus on if you want to prioritize protein, do it. That's great. But let the fat come with it the way God intended. Our bodies are, are built to take it that way. Mm, I love that. No, that's great. Um, we will be sure to link that in the show notes. Um, I want to go back to something you said. I am about, I don't know, 30 miles north of you right now um, in, in mm-hmm. the valley to the north, both in Utah, practicing distancing. I look outside and I yeah. don't see many things growing right now. It's really cold. <laughs> I'm kind of bundled up. And I, I look out on the land and I don't see many things growing. I don't see fruit. I don't see vegetables. Yeah. I don't see the wonderful tomatoes I had a few months ago. Everything's kind of sleeping. And so I think let's go back 10,000 years and look at this valley and say, where am I going to find my food? And you're right. My only shot at finding food this time of year is going to be hunting animals. And they are going to come with fat and protein, but carbohydrates are going to be exceedingly rare. I, I may not mm-hmm. come across them for many months. Yet in the summertime, I might find a lot of them for a very short period of time. Can you explain yeah. how that was beneficial for us as we evolved? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I like that you're seeing the world that way. I do think there are some perhaps lessons we learn um, or we can we can learn or relearn by by wondering how our ancestors might have lived. Not that we're going to attempt to replicate all that. We, no one would want to. Now, I of course, I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I'm not a, a scientist of sort of human history and changes over time. But I, I would say here, certainly in the arid conditions of Utah, but even the same would apply in less arid places like in Texas, where I was down in Houston. That's a lush area you just don't find plants spontaneously growing edible foods. The vast, vast majority of all plants in the world are completely inedible. In fact, indeed, if we try to eat them, we become sick. And if we persisted in continuing to eat, if we persisted in eating them, we would die. The vast majority of plants are, are not um, consumable for humans or even most animals. And the fact that we have as many plants as we do right now is because we have scientific, we've bred them to be edible. We have, we've bred them to, to, you know, to uh, exaggerate what we want and to and minimize these molecules that we don't want, including molecules that are getting, that people are getting a lot of when they're getting their plant-based proteins that are physically inhibiting their intestines ability to digest the very proteins they're eating. Plants, in a way, I don't mean this to sound dramatic, but they fight back by putting chemicals in them to discourage us from wanting to eat them. So uh, around us, if we were hunter-gatherers, we would most certainly find some success. And and I believe around here, much of that would be, um, you know, random berries um, and and maybe some some tuberous, uh, you know, roots that we could eat, and 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 maybe a few more, and, and just. That undoubtedly, and I can't speak to them just because I'm not familiar enough with that area of research. So there, we would be able to get some plants, um, and many of them would become ripe towards the end of summer and early fall. And so, even in the spring, for example, or even in the middle of the summer, most although if if you have your own garden, in fact, I want you tell me I haven't had a garden since I was a boy. I, nothing is coming ripe in the summer, right? Or maybe towards the end of summer. Yeah, that's when you get those great tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So this would be like July, August. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I haven't gardened in a few years either, but um, my friends have, and I still get yeah. tomatoes every now and again. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, but that's my point, though, is that there there are 
there's a significant time where, well, regardless, even then, even in the summer when things would be full bloom, we I, I, undoubtedly, I, I am just convinced our ancestors would have still been heavily reliant on animal-based foods. These, these, these sources of carbohydrates, which are, are fine, that's wonderful. I have no problem with them. Um, they would have almost always been a, a bonus. You know, in other words, hey, look, we got some berries. That's awesome. Let's add them to the meat that we're eating or whatever. It's, it's dessert after the meat. But humans, there is, there, it, it makes me very curious how people could claim that humans are not omnivores. We are, or even more carnivore than we are herbivore. A human cannot, cannot live on plants alone. That is a diet that is incompatible with human survival. Now, someone's saying, well, I know a vegan or I'm a vegan and I can do it. Uh, veganism, if, it, if someone is surviving on it, is a privilege of the elite. This is a person who must know what nutrients they are deficient in because they will absolutely be deficient in nutrients. So they have to have a sufficient level of education to know that. And second, they have to have a, significant, a sufficient level of wealth to afford the supplements um, that they're missing. That's a really Fine. good point. That is a person who can survive on a vegan diet. So humans are not herbivores. However, you can take a human that is living on nothing but a carnivore, a carnivorous diet, and they will survive perfectly fine. And I mean it. There will be no nutritional deficiencies. So we have, we can live as carnivores, and, and but but we but we can also um, subsist perfectly fine with plants in our diet. So we are omnivores. We're built that way. And so I think that it's, it's comfortable to just say we're omnivores and leave it at that. But back to your sort of initial um, sentiment, uh, our ancestors would have certainly enjoyed carbohydrates whenever they could get them. But thankfully, carbohydrates are not essential um, to the human survival. There are such things as essential fats. There are such things as essential amino acids, and we get them all in any source of animal foods. And there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, nothing, zero zilch. There's absolutely nothing essential about it. All this focus on polyphenols and plant metabolites like resveratrol and, you know, whatever, that's all fun. That's all neat stuff, but humans do not need it to survive. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't eat them, therefore, I'm not saying that, but I am saying, I guess, don't let that be the focus of your diet the one macronutrient that is not essential and coincidentally happens to have the biggest effect on insulin. Focus on the two macronutrients that are essential and coincidentally have the least effect on insulin. We are now going to hear from a skin health expert, Rob Stewart, who we interviewed in episodes 98 and episode 330 of Boundless Body Radio. He is most popular on Instagram and on YouTube, so be sure to follow him there. He is an expert in helping people deal with psoriasis and eczema, which he has quite the history with himself and how he used different diets to kind of manage those conditions, which started out as a vegetarian and then a vegan diet and how that progressed. And he's going to describe what it was like to leave that community. So let's hear from skin health expert, Rob Stewart. Around that time is when a history of just super sensitive skin as a kid, things that were looking back were definitely skin disease. But at the time, as a redhead um, with sunburns and scratches and cuts, everything was just kind of thrown into the same category as that's Robbie. He, he just gets banged up. That's how he is. So 
there was never any interventions as far as medications or doctors or dermatologists. It was just, um, he's got sensitive skin. He gets itchy when he gets in the grass. Sometimes his scalp gets inflamed. Normal football season would come around. And, you know, the first day with pads on my sternum would itch and my head would itch, but I just thought that was sensitive skin. Um, looking back, those were the early warning signs that I was already having pretty severe skin disease. Um, as I got into my 21s, um, leaving Utah, I started to get the real eczema, dermatitis, psoriasis, rosacea stuff on the, in the T-zone, in my scalp, sternum. That led to, by the time I was around 25, 27, pretty severe full body. So we're talking psoriasis, ankles, behind the knees, armpits, crotch, rosacea on the nose, cheeks, wow. eczema, sebderm. I had like five different diagnoses. And I was severely impaired with my digestion. So IBS, um, leaky gut, uh, all of that stuff. Um, that led to the deep dive uh, <laughs> into my own health um, after spending you know, thousands and thousands of hours and dollars on doctors and dermatologists getting nowhere, getting worse. Um, I, I just felt in my heart that there's something out there and there's something I'm missing. And I, I don't know what it is, but I, I'm going to go an alternate route. And little by little, I found uh, Ayurveda, then yoga therapy, and then plant-based food, and then carnivore diet. And all of these things have just unfolded over the years. Um, And about nine years ago, I was cured of the skin disease and all of the elements. And I've been kind of rolling this adventurous, healthy lifestyle and coaching people to, you know, find their own path in the same way um, ever since. And it's been, uh, it's kind of been like three different lives. My childhood was amazing. Then my days, um, after Utah were great, but they were also really hard and they were a big struggle bus. And then the years after uh, leading up to now have been just an absolute blessing. Wow. That's so cool. What a journey. I mean, it sounds like the hero's journey, like going out on your adventure and, you know, encountering the foe and, and, you know, learning what you needed to learn and then coming back with the information and, and then be going out and like sharing that stuff. It's, it, that's really cool. Super amazing. Um, this may be a stupid question, but with skin issues, how, how painful, like, is there, is it actively painful all the time? It can be, um, it, it, it's different for everybody and it, it can be different depending on the severity um, and also the areas of the body that you're suffering. For me, the pain wasn't that bad. It wasn't like debilitating pain, but it was incredibly itchy. I mean, we're talking it, it multiple parts of my body itching 24-7 for months in a row wow. where you'd literally, you'd scratch so much that you'd bleed yourself to bed. You'd wake up, have to wash and change your sheets, um, shower, clean everything, gauze everything. Uh, wow. and then you'd be still itching. And so you you'd have different patches that were kind of healing and different patches that were flared up. And when that's going on in your crotch and behind your knees and on your neck and in your eyes and your ears and on your scalp and on your face, um, as you're, in front of a hundred people teaching a yoga class is not a very fun thing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, some of your before pictures are just insane. It, you can see the, you know, the red skin and the, the cracking and the dryness. Um, it, it, as you were going through kind of the medical system, you mentioned doctors and dermatologists, like what, what were, what were some of those solutions that they tried to give you? Um, pretty typically across the board, 
they were just pushing medications. There was, especially in dermatology, and I think that it has started to change a little bit, but what you see still is you go to a dermatologist and you say, hey, I have skin disease or what, what is this? And they give you a, some diagnosis that's usually wrong. Um, and then they start with cortisone creams and steroid creams, and then they work their way up all the way to immunosuppressants and all sorts of crazy pharmaceuticals. Um, and they're very happy to throw them at you as fast as possible. The problem is, is that they also, in conjunction with that, when you say, Hey, do you think that I could, you know, make some progress by healing my gut and dressing my diet and nutrition and lifestyle? And they, they scoff and laugh at you. They, they turn their nose up at you, like, like really pompous attitude. And they just like the, the common thing that you hear in our community is when you go to a doctor and you ask them about diet, they laugh and they say, Oh, eczema and dermatitis and psoriasis has nothing to do with diet. And you cannot cure it. It's impossible to cure. You have to be on medications for the rest of your life. Wow. Um, so that that's the narrative that the doctors were were telling you, telling me all the time. And then that's what they still tell everyone all the time. And so, as you could imagine, it was, um, it was a very frustrating and challenging and scary thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, hearing that you're going to have to deal with something that's painful and uncomfortable for the rest of your life, and there's nothing you can do about it besides take medications with probably tons of side effects, I would assume. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty scary. And I, I do think, I do concede that I think a lot of people would think about those skin conditions and think that what, what the hell does that have to do with nutrition? That doesn't have anything to do with the food that you put in your body. What things did you learn about nutrition and how it relates to the skin? Man, uh, what I learned is that you can look at yourself in the mirror um, and literally every single thing, data point that you pick up on, the color of your eyes, the brightness of your eyes, the shine of your skin, oily, oiliness of your hair, your body fat, your muscle tone, um, the circumference of your waist compared to your shoulders and neck, um, just the vibrancy and energy of your body, that's all food, 100% food. Um, you can drastically change all of those things just by eating the right things. And the skin is just an organ and it's a, basically a filtration slash detox organ. It's also a safety mechanism, but that's, that's kind of secondary. And when the skin is showing that it's diseased, um, it's also showing that the autonomic nervous system fight or flight is out of whack like crazy. And there's only one pathway to all of those things, the immune system, the hormones, the autonomic nervous system, it's lifestyle, it's what you do and it's what you eat. Hmm. I love that. You have a really interesting journey of discovering what to eat. You mentioned going like really plant-based and, and you also mentioned the carnivore diet. And so uh, I'm curious, what was that progression like and what things did you notice as you were transitioning from those diets on your journey? Yeah, that's a great question. And that, the, the diets has been a big part of my journey and a, a big part of my, I guess, online persona um, from the outside looking in. I was plant-based for, I don't use the word vegan anymore because when I do, I get attacked by vegans who said, if you are still not vegan, you never fucking were. It's like, oh, okay, man, you're right, bro. So I, I was plant-based vegan and um, I was that for eight years. And I was I healed myself during that time. Um, but the problem is, is that where it led me, um, both socially and with my health became pretty gnarly, pretty bad, like so bad to the point where, um, I went from about 190 pounds down to 140 pounds. Um, I got 
digestive issues again. Um, luckily, I'm able to read my body well enough that I pulled the plug before my skin disease came back. But I had a host of really bad health problems, my teeth, my hormones, uh, my testosterone is generally high. It's in the 900s. Um, and it dropped down to 220. Wow. That's like a freaking 92 year old, um, impotent, not interested in sex. And worst of all, and the biggest tragedy that really shook me into something new was my partner at the time was a strict vegan as well. And we had been blessed with, um, the opportunity to have a baby together and the baby died miscarriage. Oh. And we later found out that it was 100% due to her diet. She had a B12 deficiency, a D deficiency. She developed oh a blood disorder from her vegan diet. So all of those things kind of made me obviously rethink and really take a moral inventory. And, and when I got honest, dead honest with myself, um, I knew that it was time to change. So that, that led me onto a new journey. Um, I started introducing animal foods and, and kind of went the ketogenic way. And that just quickly turned into a meat-based diet. Um, about a year into my meat-based diet, carnivore diet, um, I had gone from about 147, 150 up to about 190 and my body fat dropped. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd gotten leaner, but I put on tremendous amount of muscle, um, especially in my neck, shoulders, upper chest, upper back and arms, um, compared to when I was vegan. And, um, uh, that leads basically the last almost four years. I've been on an animal focused diet, lots of animal fats, animal proteins. I still eat a lot of fruit and very little vegetables now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been kind of my path previous to that. It was standard American diet and probably I, look, man, I was the kid who between going to class and getting stoned before baseball practice at Utah, I was at the corner store on like what second or 12th and university, wherever that was. And I was getting the fried jalapeno poppers, oh, the man. chicken fingers, the Snickers and a 32 ounce of cherry Coke. And like, that was my, that was my like, okay, I got to get ready for practice. I better get some nutrition in my body. So I, I came from the worst of the worst plant-based woke me up and helped me to gain some discipline and learn about myself and, and what my needs were and to gain a sensitivity with my own needs. And now the carnivore diet and, and what I, I just consider it more of an animal-based focused diet um, has really brought my understanding of nutrition and my own healing to just a whole another level. Wow. It's so interesting that transition it can be really common for people just really suffering on a standard American, maybe finding a plant-based diet or, you know, paleo. And I, I generally see people moving towards, um, you know, paleo to keto, keto to carnivore, and just kind of bouncing around in that space. And it's amazing. Once you've done this long enough, you don't even really need to ask people what they're eating. You can just see it. You can see it in their body. Yeah. You can see it in their waist. You can see it in what you've already mentioned, which I'd love that you mentioned the brightness in the eyes, your countenance, your presence, like the width of your smile, the warmth of a handshake, like all of those things are so much more enhanced. And it's so obvious once you have an eye for it. 100%. And it's, you kind of too, for me, I had to go through, I had to be the, the, the guy that was obviously not being healthy so that I could really feel and see the difference in myself. But there, there is a point when you've done this long enough and, and you can really, I mean, I can honestly, um, you know, see a, a YouTuber or a guy on Instagram or someone on the streets or a new client 
And I can pretty much say, here's what your workouts look like. Here's what your movement patterns look like. And here's most likely what your diet is. And I, I'm pretty good at, at guessing yep. that. Yep. They're a little startled at first, but you can kind of pretty much nail it for sure. So you mentioned, you mentioned transitioning away from, you know, vegan lifestyle, vegetarian or plant-based lifestyle. What was that transition off of that difficult for you? You, you kind of alluded to the pushback that people get, which has never really made a lot of sense to me, but, um, was that, was that difficult to leave that community? Um, no, leaving the community and I might sound like an asshole here, but I don't really care. Leaving the community was my favorite part of it because I hated being in that community. Um, I found the community to be filled with liars, snake oil salesmen, manipulators. And to be honest, I think that the whole vegan agenda is based on propaganda that nothing checks out. Like it's not better for the environment. It's not better for animals. It's not better for anything. It does not make you super healthy and it does not create a robust, strong, sustainable soil-based environment. Um, so in, as a vegan, I was in a vegan for health because I'm very fine with the circle of life and death and the circle of life. Um, I've been around nature enough to understand that there's no such thing as veganism in nature. And there's no such thing as not hurting other things in nature. It's just, just part of the game. Um, but the part of the um, so I, I was in veganism for the health. And as I became kind of well-known on YouTube as the vegan, you know, skin guy and getting to know other vegan YouTubers, um, I'm not going to name names obviously, but I was pretty disgusted with the whole scene. And so leaving it was great. Um, mm. did I get pushback? Yeah, I got death threats. I got tons of stuff. Did, wow. did it negatively affect my business and YouTube channel? Absolutely not. That pivot blew me up. Um, when I pivoted, I went from maybe 85, 90,000 followers to like 109,000 followers on YouTube pretty quickly. Um, and it was like what you said in the intro. I found, I actually found my greater truth and my tribe and my people. Mm -hmm. um, so I still get a lot of kickback. Um, there's constant vegan YouTubers making hate videos about me. Um, but it's, it's all good. Mm. We were talking to João Franco. He lives in Portugal. We were discussing his carnivore diet, and he mentioned something that I really connected with as well. I I was always I I already felt like pretty optimistic and you know happy with life. I was a pretty positive person, but I was stunned how much my spirituality and gratitude increased when I went to a carnivore diet. And you wouldn't think that. You'd think that you know I'm out killing animals and you know bloodthirsty savage <laughs> eating whatever I can get my hands on. But I appreciate life and my food. And I, I feel like I'm more myself. I bring more presence to life. I get way more enjoyment. I'm way more grateful for things. Is that something that you also noticed? Man, it's really funny that you mentioned that. Um, my client that I just got done talking to about 30 minutes ago, what's up, Carlo, if you're listening, um, he literally said the same thing. He was like, dude, I don't know if this is like me being full of crap or I'm just like, I don't know what's going on, but he's like, I'm feeling spiritual. He's mm. like, what's going on with that? I'm like, well, tell me about it. Like, what do you mean you're feeling spiritual? He's just like, I don't know. He's like, I just have like less drama and more gratitude. And I, I'm just, I feel more connected to uh, nature and people and, and myself and my spirit. He's like, and I'm not a spiritual guy. He's like, even talking about this makes me feel a little embarrassed. And I've heard that a lot. My, my experience was that 
I felt like um, a lot of a lot of plant-based and vegan people um, they say, man, it, when I become vegan, I, it's so much easier to meditate and I'm, I feel so much closer to spirit. I, I couldn't disagree more. It wasn't until I started eating proper human nutrition and my hormones and my brain activity and my neurotransmitters start working again that I actually was like, man, I have the deepest appreciation for this voyage of humanity that we go on, this absolute trip, this, this amazing, exciting adventure. And here's the weird thing. Um, I now have a much deeper and greater relationship with animals in the wild, with pets, with horses and cows. Like as a vegan, it was like, yeah, they're lovely and great and save the animals. But now it's like, I look at these, I, I feel the energy of animals on such a different level. I feel like it's, I'm connected to them in, the, in a way that's more of a natural circle and cycle of life. Wow. That's so beautifully said. I love that. I completely agree. Uh, the appreciation for neighborhood cats or the ducks that nest on the hill by our house. You just, yeah, you feel that kind of vibrancy and life from them. That's yeah. That's really well said and amazing. And even the food that I, the food that I, eat, you know, before it's like, I, I would, I would have a vegan meal and it's just like, okay, cool. Like, thanks for the meal. Boom. Let's eat. And now like as a steak's coming out, or for me, I try to eat as much wild game as possible. So I have a friend who's coming over later tonight. He's going to bring some elk. And um, it's like, he's going to, he hunted that. He has a spiritual relationship with that elk. He ended that elk's life and said a prayer right to that elk for giving his family life and sustenance. So that elk that died is now going to create life for half a dozen people, create babies, new human babies. Um, and so from that perspective, I'll see this elk tonight and I'll get just right now, the hair on my arms kind of stood up and I'll have a deep respect for the food. And it's, it's very much kind of a similar idea that you see native Americans, how they, they used nose to tail every part of the animal, The the animal was damn near a God to them because it was the life giving thing. And because it was so sacred they respected it and they honored it. And if you know anyone who's like a, lives in Alaska or is a sustenance type of living off the land, you don't overhunt. You don't kill more than you need to. You only take what you need because you only need a little bit as a human. Like you, you, you're out in, in, in the wild and you get one elk or you get a huge moose and you're set for a good block of time. Next, we are going to hear from Jake Marquez and Marin Morgan, who are the masterminds behind the project called Death in the Garden. They are in the process of making a documentary, which will hopefully be released soon. And as they're going through that process and that project, they're also releasing a podcast by that same name, Death in the Garden. I think you're going to hear in this clip the passion that these two individuals have, very young individuals who were trying to be very thoughtful about what, what was best for their health and what was best for the health of the planet. I think that really shines through here. So we're going to hear their story now and i have to say i can't recommend their podcast enough they do such a wonderful job at death in the garden and so i would definitely make sure you go check them out but let's listen to them now um the sound will be a little bit weird on this one we actually recorded this in a library in a little side office of a library so shout out to daybreak library uh for letting us record there we both kind of realized that we both have podcasts but we don't really record in ideal situations to have other people in person so that's why the sound's going to be a little bit different um but yeah 
out. We're lucky we didn't get kicked out by some librarian or whatever. But anyway, let's go to this clip with Jake and Marin um, that's taken from episode 348 of Boundless Body Radio. You know, it's it's such a hard thing to untangle because humans are so funny. Because again, to the stories we tell ourselves, people will go like Lear Keith 20 years before and know that they're sick on an intuitive level. No. Hardcore. Hardcore. And I mean, so a bit about my story was that, you know, I was plant uh, somewhat plant-based for many years, but then decided for a specific period, about two years, I was pretty close to being vegan the whole time, but there was a seven month period where I ended up living out of a tent in the middle of nowhere, Australia at a yoga retreat that was owned by the Hare Krishnas. I don't know if you know anything about them, but it's a very, uh, not vegan, but as close as you can get to veganism without giving up dairy essentially for the Hare Krishnas. And they owned this yoga retreat where the deal was, you know, you could grow the food or help in the gardens in the morning. And then they would let you pitch up your tent. And so as like a broke hippie, it was the perfect situation. Like I get to have free food three times a day and live here with a bunch of young, beautiful hippie people. Awesome. But, you know, I spent about seven months there and I want to elucidate to people too. You know, we were doing it right is, you know, I was told so many times you weren't doing veganism right. But if there was anybody on earth doing veganism right, it was us. We were planting our own food. We were growing our own food in this centropic farming fashion or in organic permaculture. Like we were doing veganism right. It was earth to mouth type veganism, somewhat raw, somewhat cooked. There was a little bit of dairy in there if you ate at the Hare Krishna temple. So anyways, but even with doing veganism that right, my health just fell apart. You know, it just, it really did just fall apart. And it was very obvious. And I mean, I can go down that whole story of, how I started putting those pieces together and how I started looking around me. But I, what I did notice is a lot of people, especially in the Hare Krishna community, but also at this yoga retreat who had been vegan for a long time. And I just knew and could see weren't feeling good. And I just, I think the promises of veganism, especially if I were to look back at myself as a young person who feels so disgruntled about the world and is so rightly worried about the world and feels and empathizes with how crazy the world is right now, you're offered a solution to all of that. And if you just, if you think about the concept and what we were all trying to live together, right? Like young people with good intentions and we're meditating and we're doing yoga. And it's we're, amazing. It's, per, yeah, it's amazing. It's You have this vision of paradise, of this garden of Eden-like existence we can get back for ourselves. And it seems so obvious. We don't kill things. We just don't kill. It seems so obvious. And it really, there is a comfort in it. There is a big comfort in it. And when you take that away from people, it... By thinking you don't eat things, you can also displace a lot of psychological energy. It allows you to not have to think about certain things that kind of suck to have to think about. You know, you don't have to think as much about the fact that you're going to die. If you eat this diet, you're actually going to live longer with less disease. That's what you're told. There's, you know, stories of becoming breatharian and living forever. You know, so there's that aspect of it. But it's such a good, it's such a good deal that it's really hard to give it up. And so I think, and people really surround themselves completely, their whole community. I mean, as I, when I left veganism, the thing that I was worried the most about was the, the pushback, the vitriol I knew I was going to get from vegans, especially people I knew firsthand. Like that's, people don't want to lose their community. They don't want to feel like they've been kicked out of the tribe, especially that tribe. And when you're kicked out of that tribe, it's mean, it's ugly. You're a murderer. Yeah. Like you're a nasty murderer. I mean, I get why they think that. 
so that's where it comes from. I mean, it's somebody is like, oh, you eat babies? You know, that's, that's how they feel about it, you know? So it's really hard to feel like you can have the courage or the honesty with your body and your experience. And I also think when you go far enough down veganism, it really, really messes with your head. And you become very, very bipolar and unstable and irrational. And there is a lot of anger that lives inside of you when you're a vegan out of pure malnutrition, and all the just slaughter porn you have to watch when you're a vegan, you do, you just get angry and you, it, it's very frazzling, wow. you know? Yeah. I think that's probably what I would say to that. Yeah. For what reason did you become vegan? All of it. I think at first it was probably more of a health thing. I had kind of started a health journey, maybe around 19. I was dealing with a lot of really bad stomach problems and skin problems. And so at 19, I started like cutting out sugar and just doing common sense things to be healthier. And then I kind of heard about paleo and paleo seemed to make sense. Like, oh, eat like our ancestors, don't eat processed food. Did that for many years. Felt a lot better, but it was I was also doing poor man's paleo. Like I was a broke kid living in New York. So I had, you know, I don't know, 50 bucks a week to get as many vegetables in my body as possible. And some like lean, shitty chicken breast meat from Trader Joe's, you know. (laughs) So I always say I was like almost plant based during those years because there was some years it was just like a pile of broccoli and hemp seeds and whatever I thought was protein packed. So I I was very plant based for a while. And then I started getting involved in yoga communities and spiritual communities and working on myself and actually having a good time. You know, I was taking a lot of psychedelics and doing them very intentionally and really being trying to work on myself and trying to figure out my health. And eventually when you're in the spiritual community long enough, you meet enough attractive young people who are vegan and it just seems, it seems right. And so I was kind of transitioning into being fully vegan, no animal products whatsoever. And I kind of kicked off this two year around the world vagabond traveling trip where I bought a one way ticket to Thailand and then figured it out for the rest for the next two years wow. type deal. And, you know, when I, by the time I made it to Australia, I was, you know, completely out of money. So it was this thing where I was like, I had no money. So Gotta the, do something. Yeah, the best option was live for free in a tent and have free food. It was like, awesome. And it's vegan, what I'm doing. So that's kind of how I, I, I fell into it, you know. And so at first it was definitely for health, but the spirituality thing came with it. The environmentalism came with it. By the end, I was all for intentions of being vegan. I was really was really where my head was at. Whole package. Oh, yeah. And that's why it's so enticing. You do feel like you're doing your part. And on all of those levels, I'm doing my part for my health, doing my part for the animals, I'm doing my part for the planet. And this thing that I'm choosing to do is benefiting all of those things is yeah. the message. Exactly. Exactly. It's, a, you know, and like I said before, if I was a very passionate young person and well, capitalism, you know, that kind of like, yeah. it just seems so nice and it's so relieving and it's just like, it feels so good. And which is so hard when you have to admit that it's not working, yeah. you know, it was so hard to admit. But then once I did, it was just like, oh, thank God. Like I'm like free of this mental prison yeah. that I'm in. Yeah. Lear talks about that all the time too. When she was starting to connect the dots and she kind of writes her book in that style as well of like, this is me going along the journey and, you know, grappling with the fact that the slugs are going to die to plant her yeah. lettuce, which is like my favorite story ever. <laughs> it's such a good story. Such a yeah. good story. Um, but, but yeah, very difficult. Baron, for you, what, what has your relationship with food been and how has that been part of your story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I grew up with like, a. My, my parents divorced when I was pretty young and it was like 
both both households, the food culture was very, very different. Um, but I ate a lot of like processed foods growing up, a lot of foods that I, you know, I, I, I look back and I'm like, how is that affecting me today? You know, <laughs> like the amount of mac and cheese and Oreos and stuff. Oh God, and, totally. <laughs> and, you know, my parents were doing the best that they could and they didn't know. Um, they, they didn't know what I know now. Um, but so for me, I think that sort of what happened was I was weirdly, it was weird because I didn't ever think that of myself as like more plant-based. But then when I looked back on like the food that I could afford during college or the food that I would cook for myself, I didn't cook any meat for myself. I would have, you know, like sandwich meat and stuff and that would be about it. Um, but I ate a lot of like Mexican food when I was in college. And, but most of the time I was pretty vegetarian. Um, on not, purpose? No, just, yeah. just by accident, just, just kind of by accident because I had never really, I never really like learned how to cook steak or ground beef or anything like that. Um, I never really enjoyed meat that much because I wasn't really eating very good quality meat. I didn't even know what it meant to get good quality meat. Um, but then, uh, when I had met Jake, I was very much trying to eat healthy. I was already on this like path towards wanting to eat more healthy. And I was also working in this um, residential program with young people. I was just, I, I was very much trying to be a good example as someone who is healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, so I could be, so, so I could show up every day to be a good mentor to these people. Um, but then when I met Jake, you know, he kind of was like, you know, you, you could add more meat into your diet. Like you could add, you know, I was meat. like, you should straight up just eat only meat. Lady. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, <laughs> he was carnivore. And oh, yeah. I, I remember like one of our first dates, we went to breakfast and he just ordered like a hamburger patty or like a couple hamburger patties. And I was like, this guy is weird. Like, what? yeah, I was like, <laughs> and, and I still, I still like, um, a lot of like variety in my food, but, um, it was amazing because, I started adding more meat into my diet and it was like my brain turned on mm. like for the first time in my life. Um, and around that time, you know, I was really cutting down drinking, um, you know, a, a lot of aspects of my lifestyle were changing, but it was undeniable that the meat, adding this meat to my diet, adding a lot of animal source foods, a lot of butter, ghee, saturated fat, it felt like the lights turned back yeah. on. And so that's why when I read the vegetarian myth, I was just like, oh my God, like, okay. Cause like, I know that this to be, I know this to be true about myself now is that, that these, these foods are so important for me to be able to be the person that I need to be and to be able to show up in the world the way that I want to. And so, yeah, so that was, that was really big for me. Um, and, uh, previously, like a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, um, me and my friend were talking and she said something just kind of off the cuff. She was like, I think if I'm ever, if I want to continue eating meat, I need to kill a chicken and make sure that I can do that. And if I can't, then I probably shouldn't eat meat. And I remember thinking like, that seems really reasonable, you know? And I never really had these huge qualms about, um, killing animals necessarily. Uh, I was offended by the idea of, animals, animal agriculture causing climate change. Um, that was something that concerned me. That was something I was very curious about and disentangling the narratives and realizing how nuanced it was and realizing how at the same time, animals are being mistreated every day around the world are being very abused in these factory farming systems. Um, but that there's another way and we're being told that there's no other way. It's either you're a vegan and you're pure and you're perfect and you're, you're saving the planet or you're this like destructive factory farm KFO meat, meat eating person. Um, you know, I, I've always been someone who was like, 
eh, I'm sure that there's more to this story. And so, yeah. so it was like, you know, that, that sort of was my in was like, Oh, I can't deny the fact that this meat is like literally making my brain work. Wow. You hear that story so consistently with people who either transition from vegan to carnivore, or at least just add more, like you said, meat, saturated fat, animal products back in the diet. And it's like, they're waking up. Like you hear that story all the time. Is that what your experience was like, Jake? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I hadn't had any animal products for a very long time. Oh, I mean, at least, at least close to a year of like, no, not even meat, like meat, not for years, but maybe like some broth or some dairy had slipped in, but no, no, no animal products for a very long time. You couldn't even bring animal products onto the property or you'd be like executed. Uh, so I hadn't had anything in the day. I, you know, there was the, when it was all kind of coming to me, you know, I decided I was going to try meat. And so the first thing I did is I snuck off the property. I like borrowed somebody's car and snuck off the property and I had $5, you know, it was like all I had. And so I bought like the shittiest rotisserie chicken CAFO meat from the grocery store and had to like, I went under a tree and I ate it in the shade and was like so nervous people were going to see me, but I <laughs> ate it. And even though it's this shitty flavorless chicken, it was just like, my brain was back on and I had been dealing with so much depression and brain fog and like the inability to think clearly or 20 minutes ahead and plan my day. Like all of a sudden I was like, my brain is back online and I feel really good and I want to go on a jog right now. Like it was just like, whoo, like I just felt so good. And that, that moment is probably one of the most important moments of my life of just like feeling that thing happen in my body. Like actually feeling like my body was trying to communicate with me, like really trying to make sure I understood that moment and how powerful it felt to have that meat in my body. And then after then it was just like, okay, this is obvious, yeah. you know, obvious. Wow. Dude, when I get a rotisserie chicken, I turn into a grizzly bear. I Ugh. rip that thing to shreds. I'm just trying to picture you under this tree. Just, Oh dude, don't like bananas. the joints. I opened the marrow. I was eating ligaments, Ugh. like everything. That's amazing. Oh, I couldn't stop myself. <laughs> yeah. So wow. Good. That's amazing. There's somebody in my neighborhood who, um, I'm just kind of helping get started on the carnivore diet. Um, and eating all meat. And she was against it for a really long time. It had really severe skin issues, very severe skin issues. And they're starting to clear, clear up, um, after a few weeks, which is great. And when I talked to her, she was kind of like saying some of the other benefits and they're all the ones you hear, like my joints feel a lot better. Like my feet are now sore because I'm standing. I can, I can stand. I was like, had to lay down most of the time. Um, sleep is so much better now. And I asked her this question. I tried to be as mindful as I could and, and, and say, have you felt the gratitude yet? And it, it's, it's this different mm. kind of gratitude or spirituality that you experience that I don't think you can experience any other way. That's been my experience. At least within about two or three weeks of just eating meat, I, my brain was different. I was more spiritual and connected and more grateful for all the weird little things around me all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it was easy for me to let go of why I thought I was being more spiritual once I ate meat, because there is this, and to add on to this, I didn't know what the difference between being full and being satiated was yeah. until I started eating only yeah. meat. Because I'm sure you know this, where sometimes like I can eat endless rice checks, right? I can do that all day and like literally be dying from pain and keep doing it. But there's this point with meat where your body's like, nope, I'm done. And you can't even, you can't put more in your mouth because your brain doesn't let you. Right. It's like you're done and then you're good forever. But then also, yeah, this gratitude of like, because after I left veganism, I pretty much dove headfirst into carnivore. Like I was like, I'm going carnivore. Like I need to heal my body. 
and you know I instantly gained muscle, I instantly had a sex drive again, I instantly was more calm, happier, and just felt way more content in the world and way more peaceful and way more compassionate to everybody else, even though I knew all my friends would judge me. And just the gratitude of feeling satiated and feeling okay in your body and feeling like you're not being malnourished. And then also understanding that like an animal gave that to you, an animal died and being like, whoa, that's the best part of it is that it's made me more responsible for my life than I ever was as a vegan. Wow. It's easy to not think about where your food comes when you're a vegan. It really is because at least it's not meat. But once you feel so good in your body, you can't help but be feeling like you need to be more responsible and you need to think about where the meat comes from. It's like, okay, if I'm going to eat this much meat, I can't lie that like an animal is an important organism. It's an important, it's life is, is as important as it is to itself as it is, as mine is to me. And I have to recognize that I, I get a little frustrated in the carnivore community when there is the, some people overlook how important it is. It still is to take care of animals. And I get that we need to feed everybody, but this should really push us to fight for a better world and a more just and equitable and ethical food system. It's not that we don't eat less animals. I think everybody should eat as much meat as they need to feel as awesome as we've experienced on the carnivore diet. I wish that on everybody because everybody deserves that. But what that should do is make us really take ownership over our lives and know where the food comes from and know the farmers are getting a good pay and know the soil is being regenerated. We, we really owe it to the rest of life to do that if we're being gifted feeling that good in our bodies. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's why I feel like one of the biggest blessings that we've had during this project is we've met so many former vegans who are doing the most incredible work with animals. And the, the way that they are able to articulate their experience of like going all in and being, you know, like being like, I will sacrifice anything for the planet, for animals. And, and then coming to this realization of like, actually what this really means when I really am honest with myself, if I really want to access that gratitude you're talking about, I feel like you have to be honest and you have to get to that place of honesty. All of these people came to like, I need to hold the knife, you know, yeah. like, and, and I think, and that's, and that's where we've come to as well is like, you know, and, and I've also recognized in myself how, um, how, how f for my physical, spiritual and psychological health, the fact that I'm not in a position right now where I can kill my own food is actually really like really damaging to me. Um, and, you know, it's just, but, but it's been very inspiring to see so many people and so many young people, like so many of these people who are our friends, who are mm -hmm. incredible people doing amazing things and the compassion that they have for animals, they know comes from the fact that it's like, if I want to have the most compassion for animals, it's because I give it the clean death. I give it the merciful death. I give it the loving, generous, compassionate death. And like, you know, and They've all gone on these incredible journeys and we've just been lucky enough to listen. And yeah. it, I, I think one of the, the blessings that can come from the vegan world is that those who manage to get out of it fairly cleanly, quite often, you know, we go on like a circle. It's kind of like the Homer's tale, right? Like we we leave home and we come back to eating meat, but we're totally different. And we see it's not unconscious and it's intentional. And we go, we leave eating meat, but we come back being a different person. And I think I actually encourage people to do that. When I hear people who are like, you know, just the thought of meat weirds me out. I'm not necessarily like, well, you're just, you don't know enough. It's like, go on that journey for yourself, but please like listen to your body and like, make sure you're being honest and you don't get caught up in stupid ideas. I, I, I always say, you know, the four 
intentions people go vegan are for human health, planetary health, animal ethics, and the quasi fourth reason is the spirituality, higher vibration, purity thing. All four, I mean, if you have those intentions for your life, I like you. You're probably my friend. You probably are trying to be a good person. You know what I mean? I really love those intentions. I think we've been misguided on how to address those intentions in our life. That's my only point. Yeah. Yeah. Our final guest is going to be a name that you've heard several times during this discussion, Lier Keith. Lier is a wonderful author and speaker. She's the author of The Vegetarian Myth, which is an unbelievable book. I highly recommend it. It It's very well researched. And she does a great job in this clip talking about her own personal experience with vegetarian and vegan diets and how detrimental it was to her health. As you'll hear in this clip, she was able to recover some parts of her health, but others will be permanently damaged for the rest of her life. We love Lier. We love her work. So let's hear her story now. A criticism that I hear quite often is that when somebody gets off of a vegan diet, it's because they didn't really try hard enough. And so I'm just going to throw that right at you. I know your story. I I don't think you really tried that hard. I mean, sure. did you really give it a fair shake, Lier? <laughs> Come on. That You know, what's really funny about that is that there are, in fact, people, I think especially a lot of young men who don't know how to cook. And when they go vegan... They just take a bunch of stuff out, but they don't really know how to provide for themselves in any way. And they really do just become junk food vegans. And I've met them and they eat cookies and potato chips and soda all day long. And of course, that's not going to work for anybody. Um, But I think most people who go vegan really do try. And most of us enjoy cooking, you know, like we're into food and we're into the whole concept. And for me, I mean, I, I mean, I had like charts on my refrigerator that were about how to combine your proteins and, you know, like what was in kidney beans and what was in brown rice. And I was so insane. I mean, I wouldn't touch, like I wouldn't eat ketchup if there was sugar in it. I was so opposed to eating white sugar and I never ate white flour. I mean, that was whole 20 years. I literally never ate a piece of white bread. Um, No white rice, certainly. It was absolutely whole beans, whole grains, you know, is you know, and all, I mean, it was just, and back then, cause this, I mean, I started this in like 1980. Um, the, the thing that they didn't have all of those soy based meat analogs, which are highly processed poisons, but none of that existed. Like you couldn't go to the store and buy like tempeh bacon and like those fake bologna slices and the weird vegan cheese and all of those, you know, easy fast food kind of vegan things that they have now, none of that existed. So if you were going to do this, you really, really had to cook and you had to cook rice and beans. Like that's pretty much what we ate, you know, with vegetables, of course, but you know, the bulk of the food was, you know, some kind of rice and some kind of bean. Um, And so it, it, I mean, it was in some ways healthier than what they have now because with all that, I mean, the soy milk alone is just deadly. Um, And then none of that existed. Like I remember the first time seeing soy milk in a grocery store and just of course being thrilled because sure. I was a vegan, but, um, I, it would have been worse, I think for me, if all of that stuff had existed. And so, I mean, all of this is to say is I did it as whole food and natural and whatever, you know, that you want to, that anybody could have done it. Right. Um, and it just was a disaster. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. I think if, if there's one person on this planet that can write this book, it's absolutely you. I mean, I heard you talking about like frying tofu and vegetable oil. I almost like gagged. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that sounds <laughs> terrible. So you started back in 1980. 
Uh, let's see. I was 16. So, um, yeah, it was 1980, 1981. Yeah. Mm. Would have been early 1981. Yeah. What was it that got you to start trying it? Well, I got into it in the way that most people get into it, which is you meet somebody who's already doing it and you are convinced. So I was converted. Uh, I met another teenage girl whose family, they were all vegans. They were super into being vegans. They had in fact moved to Boston to be with other vegans so that, I mean, it was just vegan, vegan, vegan. So I entered that whole world. And, and at that point, it was such a small little community that you got to know everybody really quickly. But, you know, there's definitely, when you do extreme things, it's, it you in many, many realms, you can end up in these sort of cult-like little cul-de-sacs. And that is where I ended. You know, if you're only talking to people who believe these things, it's, when it starts to fail you, it's really hard to get out because mm. it's an echo chamber. You know, it's, this is certainly not the only little subculture that does this, but uh, that's where I ended. And we know when all your friends are doing it and you, there's nobody can question it because, you know, you know, you're going to lose everyone and everyone's going to get mad at you. And, you know, we, you all just, it's just this constant reinforcement that, you know, Oh, do it this way. Try it that way. Go and do this instead. You'll be fine. There's no way this is wrong. And then one by one people fall out because of course it doesn't work. And eventually the rubber does hit the road and one by one, all of those people had to start eating animal products. And I was the last holdout. I mean, wow. it was like, I was just so extreme, you know, because I couldn't give it up until it, I was half dead. But, 16 you know. 16, too. That's such a developmental, formative year, especially for a female. That's what kinds, of, what kinds of consequences did your body suffer from that? My poor brain. I feel like it never quite myelinated correctly, you know. Um that's the thing. That's one of the things that happens when you're a teenager is it's all of that myelin, all of that sheathing has to happen in the brain. And, it, you know, your, your frontal lobes go offline for a while, which is why teenagers are a little bit crazy. Um, but then, you know, it, it all has to kind of reconnect itself. And all of that is based on animal fat and protein. I mean, that's what your brain is. Um, and it's really slightly disturbing still to think about, I might be a different person if I had done this even a little bit later in life. <laughs> But I had immediately had all those problems that vegans have. So the depression, the anxiety, um, you know, that just terrible kind of ennui, exhausted feeling in that fog in your brain. And I, you, you get used to it, you know, because it doesn't come on the first day. It may take a few months, even a few years, depending on how good, you know, your background nutrition has been for your life. And you don't realize that it's not normal. You just think, well, this is how life is. But I mean, to give you one example, this was a constant, you know, for 20 years. If I couldn't find my house keys or my wallet, I would end up in a puddle on the floor just crying. Like there's the, the, the level, you just, there's no balance in your brain. There's, there's, there's no give, like the tiniest little thing happens and you have no resources left to use to just deal with something as silly as I'm like, where did I put my damn keys? And it's, so it's that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, those, those rages and the, you just fall off the cliff, you know, just every, every day, pretty much. I had a, I met a young guy much later who, you know, had read my book and had been through very similar things. And so he was a vegan for two years. And by the end of it, he had OCD, he had suicidal depression, like just every horrible emotional problem that he had never had before. But he had moved to Portland, Oregon to, of course, be with the vegans. And he was working in a vegan bakery. And this is the point. Every day, starting at two o'clock, vegans would come into the this little bakery and buy like 
these they had these giant cookies that had two inches of icing on them that was essentially pure sugar. And they would be desperate, of course, because their blood sugar has completely crashed. And they would be waiting in line to get this, you know, this wad of sugar, essentially. And there was always at least one person crying. Sometimes somebody would be screaming. There was always, every single day, one person crying. And he would go home every night and say to his girlfriend, there's something wrong with us. Like, I know this isn't normal, but I can't quite figure out what has gone so wrong. Um, You know, eventually he got out, but it, that was it. Like, that was my life. I completely understand now what happened to my brain. But at the time, you, you just don't know. And it just feels normal. And of course, when all your friends are doing it, too, it everybody just keeps saying, yeah, this is this is just life. And of course, when you're young, you really don't know better. It's not like I'd had 20 years of adulthood. And then when it starts to fall off the edge, you're like, yeah, this isn't right. I mean, I started as a teenager where you're already a little bit crazy. So, yeah, I'm... It, the brain, my poor brain. I'm really sorry for it. <laughs> and then big I'm pharma so just keeps working off of the anxiety and depression and has endless supplies yeah. of different medications people get themselves on, get further down the rabbit hole. That's so crazy. Wow. And there's so many. I mean, I think we all know people who with better nutrition, they start to understand you need full fat animal products every day, a huge chunk of them. And it's amazing how even within a week or two, people feel dramatically better. And then in a month or two, they can start getting off some of those meds. And, you know, it's like this little miracle that it, people can produce in their own lives just by eating grass-fed butter and some grass-fed beef. Like it makes a huge difference. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's crazy. I, you said something really important in there that people like, it's not just, this is what I eat. It's I am X. <laughs> You know, like it's not, it's not, it's not just food. It couldn't just be food. This is my entire way of life. This is what I believe. This is my ideology. I'll do any mental gymnastics to keep the cognitive, you know, dissonance going. And, and the hard, really tough thing is like, they're, you're doing it for the very best of reasons. Generally speaking, it comes from really great intentions. Like, like it's, it's admirable. Yeah. So the thing about being a vegan is it is never just a diet. It is almost entirely, it becomes your identity. So it's your whole sense of self is wrapped up in this. And the problem with embracing something that deeply is that when it comes time to deal with information that is perhaps new and different, that is in some way threatening to that ideology, you can't handle it. It's it's too terrifying. So this is again, where you get into those sort of cult-like situations where you just cannot engage. Mm. Um, And in in my life, that, I mean, that really went on for 20 years because I never stopped being passionately interested in trying to figure out why were humans destroying the planet? Where did this start? Why are we doing it? What is the mechanism? You know, like, what is that? Like, what's the progress of this? Like, what's the moment when humans decided to do this stuff? What is it called? You know, how is how does it function? So I was like always engaged in this kind of research and doing my own experiments, like trying to grow food and all this. And I couldn't face the answers that I was finding because they ran completely counter to what I thought was true, you know, speaking as a vegan. And so, I, I mean, literally it was the angel I wrestled for 20 years. Wow. And one of the good things about finally having to give up, you know, that that whole way of life was that. I could finally take a look at all that information that I had gathered, both, as I say, experientially, and then also, 
you know, just all the books I'd been trying to read and then I couldn't finish them because it was too disturbing. And like, I didn't know how to make it all come together. And finally, when I was able to just put down the vegan identity, it was like, okay, I actually do have some answers. I do actually know I have managed to accumulate some information here and I need to put it together in a framework. And then I did that and life was better again. But I mean, it is a really hard year or two. Anybody who comes out of that world, it you you don't know what's stable. It's like the universe has collapsed around you. You don't know who you are. You don't know what your place is in the cosmos. You, you just have no idea what's right and what's wrong and what's up and what's down. And it is really, it's very, very hard. And if you've lost all your friends on top of it, um, it's a tough time. I mean, it, I, I answer these emails all the time, like almost every day where it's some poor person who has crawled out half dead and then doesn't know what to do. And it, it's oh, just heartbreaking. It's so, so sad. It's so it sad. is. Luckily, there's, there's a much better world now that you can fall into that, you know, people who understand ancestral nutrition, who have a, a bigger analysis about what agriculture is and what it's done to the planet and how whatever your values are about compassion and sustainability, that actually being a vegan is not the best way to institute those values. So we have a whole other world out here that's full and bountiful and loves animals and wants to repair the planet. And you can enter that world instead and you will be happier and healthier and actually do something good. Yeah. Um, so that's the good part, but it's not an easy emotional experience for anybody. There's, I mean, nobody gives this up easily. Once you're in, you're in, I mean, wow. you're committed. Yeah. Seriously. If you join it. So it's tough. I get that. So you, in your personal story, you, your, you know, journey as a vegan kind of comes to an end. What was that like? Mm -hmm. What things got, got kind of cleared up and fixed pretty quickly and what things linger on? All right. Well, so the problems I got, um, immediately I had blood sugar issues. Of course, I didn't have a word for that. Uh, all I knew was that as time went on, I was increasingly, um, hungry all the time, shaking, crying, uh, that just incredible urge to eat that it, it's it's unbearable like until you put food in your mouth you feel like you're dying and that is true because your blood sugar is either too low or too high and that's what happens when you eat a load of sugar three four five times a day you're going to be on that roller coaster constantly so that happened really quickly um and i didn't know what it was but i remember the first few times it happened because I had never experienced that before and I didn't have words for it. It was like, wow, I feel really sick and I'm shaking and I'm sweating. And I know if I eat, I feel, I'll feel better and I don't know why. Um, and I ate a cookie, a vegan cookie, and I felt, of course, better. But that's the roller coaster right there. So that happened. Um, I also, I have three autoimmune diseases now. Um, and the first one that I got was Hashimoto's, but it took probably 20 years for me to get a real diagnosis on that. So I was increasingly exhausted and did not know why. So the thyroid thing is really common among vegans. Wheat is very, very hard on the thyroid, and we know that soy kills it. So your basic vegan diet is probably going to give you thyroid problems, especially if you're a Absolutely. woman. So I got the I got the Hashimoto's thing. Um, so that happened. I also ended up with um, a condition called gastroparesis. My stomach does not make enough hydrochloric acid anymore, and I understand now what happened, but at the time I did not know what it was. All I knew was that I felt sick pretty much all the time. Um, so this sort of semi-constant nausea. And it's because if you don't have enough hydrochloric acid, your stomach just can't really empty. So I lived with that for a good long time, like decades. Uh, that got a lot better once I had a diagnosis and was able to start taking betaine hydrochloride with meals, but I didn't know that. And again, that comes back to that blood sugar roller coaster because when your insulin is 
too high, um, or I'm sorry, when your blood sugar is too high, your pancreas, it's an emergency. It's a biological emergency. And your pancreas will release this flood of insulin. It's a very blunt instrument. And this is one way you can see that we were not meant to eat a diet essentially of sugar because we can't handle it. So you get this flood of insulin and insulin grabs every single thing that it can that's floating around in your bloodstream and shoves it into your fat cells for storage as fast as it can. And this is so that your brain doesn't die because we can only exist within a very narrow range of blood sugar. If it's too high or too low, you, you can fall into a coma and die. So it's an emergency. So insulin is the response and it grabs everything into the cells for storage so that you don't die. But the problem, of course, is that it does too much. It doesn't, it doesn't know, like there's no balance here. It doesn't know how to judge whether it's too much or too little. So what happens next is your blood sugar is too low. And that's when that crying, shaking, sweating, I'm going to die if I don't eat feeling washes over you. And the, it doesn't, compulsion doesn't even begin to describe it. Like you've got to eat. So then you eat. And if you're a vegan, what you're eating, I don't care if it's quote a you know whole grain or a complex carbohydrate. If it makes you feel better to call it that, go ahead. You can eat that stuff. By the time it's done in your intestines, it has been broken down into simple sugars because that's how our, the digestive tract works. So you've just eaten another load of sugar. Congratulations. So your blood sugar goes back up and you feel a little bit better, but guess what? Now it's too high again. In comes the insulin out goes everything. Now your blood sugar is too low. And you will go through that cycle repeatedly throughout the day as a vegan over and over and over. Uh, it'll happen faster and faster because you're wearing out your insulin receptors. You, you, we really are not meant to absorb that level of sugar every day. Um, so as the years go by, I mean, it was by the time I was done, I was probably eating every half an hour, every 20 minutes. It's just semi-constant. I had to put a little piece of food in my mouth not to feel sick. And then you realize what you've done and you stop. And it's this amazing two or three days where for the first time in your life, you feel clear headed like because you're not on that constant, constant roller coaster. But one of the other um, substances that your body produces when you have that, that surge of insulin is adrenaline. Um, and it's another way that your body is trying to keep you alive. So if we can shove all this sort of excess sugar into your muscles really quickly, maybe you'll burn it off and then you know, the brain won't die. And that's sort of the theory, I guess, that your 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 body is going on. But all that adrenaline, three, four, five times a day, it, it can't be done. I mean, you're just, you're going to wear out. I mean, you're going to, adrenal fatigue is coming. But the other thing that you wear out is your capacity to make digestive enzymes. Because what adrenaline does is it shuts down your digestive system. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, if a lion is coming at you and you need to run, um, what you want is all the energy to go to those big muscles so you can either do fight or flight. But what that means is we have to shut down digestion so that all the energy can go to your muscles. So immediately it shuts down your body's capacity to digest food. Um, and sometimes if the fright is bad enough, I mean, we all know people can, you know, you pee your pants or, you know, you have some kind of release there that's no fun for anyone, but that can happen under really high stress situations, soldiers, you know, people in really life threatening situations. And that's why it's your body is getting ready to run or fight, like dump everything you don't need. Now you're ready to go. And that's adrenaline. That's what it does. So you're instigating that in your own body over and over and over throughout the day when you eat those high carb diets. So you do that for 10, 20 years, like I did, and you have permanently damaged your, your body's capacity to produce 
those digestive enzymes that you need, like the like the hydrochloric acid, I I just can't make it anymore. So I have to take this other stuff, you know, externally. But it really works. So and it's better. It got better, but it took time. Mm. It, I'm nowhere near as. I mean, that was bad. Um, so. And that may take, I mean, I, I remember asking that particular doctor, well, how long am I going to have to take this? And he just laughed. He's like, you and Betaine are going to be friends for a long time. I'm like, All right. Well, luckily you don't need a prescription. Anybody can buy it. But if you are one of those people who's coming out of one of these kind of high carb diet situations and you find yourself being really nauseated all the time, that's the go-to. Try Betaine hydrochloride. You can buy it. Like at any natural food store, they'll have it. It's over the counter, really easy supplement. You can't really hurt yourself with it. Just try it for a day or two. If you feel better, you know that's the issue. So I did that. I felt nauseated for, you know, 25 years or something. Um, and then uh, as is very common with women on low-fat diets of any kind, um, I completely messed up my reproductive organs and my reproductive cycle. I almost never got a period that whole 20 years. No doctor could explain to me what had gone wrong. Um, I ended up with really bad uterine fibroids and I'm naming the soy. I can't prove it obviously, but that's my guess. Cause of course soy does that. So I, I had to have an operation to have the fibroids removed. Um, but also the, uh, the thing that was so striking to me was, you know, after that whole 20 years of just being like, I don't know, I just don't seem to have very regular periods. I almost never get one. And then, you know, I found all this information. I, flipped my diet all around. It started to stabilize pretty quickly, but the real catch was when I took soy out of the diet, which I went cold turkey. Once I had read all that information about like how terrifying soy was, that this was a drug, not a food. I mean, you get that cold chill of horror, like what have I done? And I went absolutely cold turkey. I'm never going to eat this again. I threw everything out and not going to eat it. And about two weeks later, I got a period and literally didn't miss one again until I hit menopause. Wow. It was 28 days, 28 days, like clockwork. I mean, you could have set the nuclear clock to it. It was that regular. Wow. This was after 20 years of just being completely random and bizarre. I, I, it was stunning. I mean, even I was stunned just like that was so dramatic wow. and it was absolutely the low fat helped, but the soy was the real kicker. Don't eat and soy. Do not eat soy. Do not touch soy. Whatever else people who are listening, whatever else you decide to do or not do with your life, do not eat soy. The number one thing is take the soy out of your diet. It is absolutely poison to animals. It's like none of us should be eating it. The same thing happens to farm animals. The same thing happens to dogs. Like do not. It's just yep. we shouldn't be eating it. Just stop. It's just completely messes with you. Men and women, everybody. Nobody needs those phytoestrogens. Do not do it. And the reason that soy makes phytoestrogens is exactly that reason. Plants fight back. They don't want to be eaten either. And so... The way that they keep you from eating their babies is they wrap their seeds in all kinds of anti-nutrients and even toxic poisons. But for soy, it's been very clever throughout the millennia that it's existed. It said, fine, you can try to eat my babies, but I will make sure you don't reproduce. <laughs> yep. Anyway, so that was soy. So you just, you don't want to eat soy, but that's why. And a lot of people um, who take up kind of the vegetarian worldview and I did this myself, so I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. I'm just saying it as this was the worldview that I tried to adopt. And I struggled with it a lot because the idea was animals are worthy of moral consideration and they're sentient beings like us. And I want to care about what happens to them because they suffer and I don't want there to be animal suffering. 
but we're still drawing a line and the line is between animals and all the other living creatures. So all we've done is kind of shift that line one category down. But when you're a vegan, you still think that plants are just insensate salads and bacteria certainly don't get any notice. So everything that's keeping the soil alive, you don't even know the name for it. Mm. And literally the entire cycle of life depends on those creatures. That's right. Um, and so none of that matters. What matters is the creatures who are like us in certain ways. And those ways are essentially, does it have a mother? Does it have a face? And I used to say that all the time. If it has a mother or a face, I'm not going to eat it. But everything else is fair game because they don't count. They're not conscious. They don't suffer. They don't feel. They don't communicate. They're just kind of there. Um, and I struggled with that because a lot of times when you get into arguments with people who aren't vegan, they would bring that up, you know, and it always felt like this sort of gotcha, but I didn't have an answer. You know, they would say, ha ha, like you think animals count. Well, what about plants? And it would really get my back up because I wanted to care about plants. As it turns out, I've actually had conversations with plants. Like I know they're alive. And the more you learn about how plants communicate and care for each other and build communities um, and how they fight for their lives, like they are incredible chemical warfare experts it's because they can't run what they do instead is chemical messages is how they talk to each other and then they are able to fight off all kinds of attacks from animals by using various toxic chemicals i mean that's what tobacco does that's like what soy does they have all kinds of ways to do that um and then just learning about like you know right now i live in the redwoods and the, the the shape of redwood needles is perfectly designed you know by evolution over time there's a lot of fog here on the California coast and redwood trees are really good at turning fog into actual water. So they capture the fog with the shape of their needles. And then it comes down as little drops of water every single morning as the fog rolls in off the ocean. I know it's beautiful. And, but even more, the water that they use, they only use about one third of the water that they collect. The other two thirds is for all the other plants. (laughs) So nature loves the community and there's not a single creature that you could find and discuss that wouldn't have some feature like that where they are taking care of each other because that's what life is, is literally a web of creatures helping each other. And that also involves eating each other. It means we are feeding each other. The last part that we're going to use from that conversation is the slug story, the infamous slug story. This story is powerful. It's really funny. I think it's hilarious, but it also has a really strong message. And and I really hope you listen to this with, again, an open heart and an open mind and can take in what her message is with this story. So let's hear Leah Keith's famous slug story. So, you know, one of the things you have to do to, you know, try to reduce your carbon footprint is grow as much food as you can. And that's true. And I loved gardening. Once I discovered how to do it, I I loved it. Um, Especially, you know, I had so much depression back then. And it really helped me to just be outside in the sunshine and watch things grow and love the plants and, you know, be part of watching the soil build and all of that stuff. It was very life affirming. Um, and it, it really, it just got me through a lot of hard times. And so I was one once I got into it, I was really into it. So, so there's my little garden. Um, the problem of course, is that insects are animals. And if you have a good garden with good soil, they're, they're going to want to eat it. Like we are in competition with all kinds of creatures for these yummy, tasty 
you know, baby lettuces and, you know, green, yummy little thing, you know, like that's just, everybody's going to want them. So, uh, you know, when I was living in New England, uh, the slugs were a real problem. There was a number of different sort of garden pests that you had to deal with, but the slugs were just everywhere. And I didn't know what to do. So I planted all the lettuce. And of course, you know, in the night, there, there must have been an army of slugs that descended. I don't know how they smell it, but they know it's there. So in the morning, of course, it was all gone. I had a whole bed of lettuce that was just completely just gone, just down to the ground. You would never have known I had planted starts the day before. All right, well, I'll try again. So I went out and I got more starts. I put them in the ground. Of course, the same thing happens. Like You're not going to get a different result. So I kept trying. Um, I must have replanted those starts, I don't know, five times maybe. And it, of course, they just kept getting eaten in the night. And I didn't know what to do. So, and of course, the other plants as well were getting munched, but the lettuce, of course, is so tender when it's young. It's, they, the, the slugs just adore that stuff. But, you know, I had broccoli, I had all kinds of other plants. And when you get, they get to a certain point, like the, the bigger crops, like the coal crops and stuff, they can kind of handle it. And the, the slugs aren't as interested because the, the leaves get tougher and tougher, right? But when they're small, I mean, they'll, they'll go after any start that you've got out there. And it, it just was pointless. Like, I'm not going to have any food. And I took this very personally and very seriously because if I can't grow my food, this whole project collapses. You know, if I can't show that it can be done, then who can do it, right? Like, right. it has to be possible that I can be self-sufficient and have this low-carbon life and, you know have this wonderful garden that's totally nonviolent and all, and here's my food and isn't it beautiful? And, you know, it just like all of a piece. And I, and I believed it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even just, I was trying. It was like, I, with all my heart, I wanted this to happen. So I'm, you know, I keep replanting this looks, keep eating it and I don't know what to do. And, and especially organically, what do you do? Like you can put out bait, but a you're going to kill them obviously. And then B that's just going to bioaccumulate up the food chain. So every other animal that eats, the poisoned dead slug is now going to die. I was like, that's not an option. So I find, all right, well, there's, there's two other things you can do that are, that aren't at least poison that just sort of work mechanically. And one is there's, because slugs are soft bodied, if you put down diametaceous earth or other things that are super pokey on a small level, it, it um, destroys, it basically just, they die from a thousand paper cuts to their stomachs essentially. And I thought that's kind of a nasty way to die. Like if I'm going to have to kill them. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's not pleasant. Right. I mean, they don't scream, but I know that they're going to be really suffering. And if I have to kill them, at least I want it to be quick and, and as painless as possible. So then I found out about beer that if you put out little cups of beer, they love it and they drink it and they get drunk and then they drown. I thought, well, at least they kind of pass out happy. And Absolutely. Then, then they Good die. Call. <laughs> so I thought, all right, this seems to be the nonviolent option, but the only one that I can find is like the best one. So I went, I, I'm, I don't drink. I mean, I'd never bought beer in my life. So I went to the store and I got like a cheap bottle of beer and I, you know, I made like little cups in the ground and I put it out and then I went to sleep and I woke up at two in the morning and I just was completely horrified because this of course went against everything that I believed in being the good vegan that I was. And I thought it, these are animals and they are conscious beings and they are going to die and I'm killing them and I'm killing them because I want to eat, but I'm still killing them. And I was horrified. I mean, it's just utterly just cold sweat. So I jumped out of bed and I put on my sneakers and I ran outside and I, I saved them all and I dumped out the beer. And I, then I, then I had nothing. I went back to sleep and I woke up at, you know, really in the morning and I thought it, I just can't do this. I'm not cut out for it. I don't have a good way forward. So let's just shove this back under and pretend it never happened. And I will just go on. I will buy lettuce. I will not grow lettuce. That is 
the best thing I can think to do. And I felt very relieved for a while, like a few hours went by and I was like, I'm so glad that's over. You know, that was a, a terrible, um, like this, I've had to face this, like, you know, this terrible moment, but I've chosen the right thing because I've chosen not to kill. And that's the most important thing. So I went to the store. I said, well, I'm just going to buy lettuce. I will just buy a head of lettuce like I used to do before I had a garden. And it'll be so easy and so pure and so wonderful. And I will never have to think about this again. And I picked up that head of lettuce. And I literally thought to myself, who are you fooling? It's like I grew up in that moment. I felt it happen. It was like, you can pretend you don't know what you now know, but you have experienced this yourself. You know what went into this lettuce. And what went into that lettuce is dead animals. And they might have only been slugs, but they were animals and they were alive and they loved their lives. And somebody killed them so you could have that lettuce. There was a farmer somewhere who either sprayed those crops or put out diamate to earth or did whatever the farmer did. But the only reason you have lettuce is because somebody killed those slugs. It is the only way. There are dead animals in this food. You can face it or not, but that is the truth. And it's just, there it is. It's reality. And like you hit that wall and then that was it. I couldn't go back. I was like, wow. no, I have now recognized this fact and I'm going to have to live with it. And it was a terrible moment. And it was also kind of a relief not to be in denial anymore. Like I was chasing this ghost that I was never going to catch because it wasn't real. Like there's no way to live without something else dying. Wow. And this, I mean, this was really traumatic for me. And it was also, like I say, a relief. And not too much later after that, I had a, a talk with, with a, a friend. Um, and I know this is like the corniest thing ever, but she is Native American. And I started to explain to her like this huge realization that I had. And she just looked at me with like half compassion and half sort of pity. Like, how can you not know this? You're like 40 years old. Like, this is just like, how? and she just so kindly, she said, yes, this is true. Like for something to live, something else has to die. Just wow. boom, there it was. And it was like, you know, with all her compassion and all, you know, the wisdom that she knew since she was two years old, you know, like this is just reality. So you either do it well and you do it humbly and you say thank you and you're grateful for your life and, you know, you're happy to be alive every day and you live in a, a prayerful way that supports, you know, the cycle of life in, in whatever way you can do that as a human. Um, that's what we've got. And we're put here to do that. And you now have enough knowledge that you can try to do that with yourself. Um, running from it, you're never going to be able to do it. And so as awful as it was, it was also just such a profound moment for me. Um, and that little bit of wisdom from her really helped wow. to, just to think, okay, I'm not alone. Like there are in fact, probably a million years of human beings recognizing this and they know how to handle it. So I can learn to do this and hopefully, wow. you know, walk humbly through this, through this world and, and do my best to be a good person. But, uh, it, that was, I mean, it, everything just turned on that moment. Mm -hmm. So What a fantastic message to close this episode out, this episode of Boundless Body Radio, all about the stories of ex-vegetarians and vegans. As we said in the introduction, we want to be super respectful for this kind of thing. We understand that this is really important. We always want to build bridges and not burn them. And so really hope you took something out of this. If you listen to all of this and are not convinced that a plant-based diet is not the best thing for you and you want to continue down that path, that is totally fine. We love and respect that so much. If you ever have any questions about any of this 
stuff, feel free to reach out to us at any time. We can also help provide access to some of our guests if you have questions for them. You can always go to our website, which is myboundlessbody.com, where you can contact us, or you can also book a free 30-minute consultation where we can discuss any of this. We can discuss anything nutrition or workout-related. We are more than happy to help you, and we offer that complimentary always on our website. So feel free to take advantage of that. If you enjoyed this style of podcast, this format of podcasting, I would encourage you to check out our Patreon page where you can subscribe for a very low monthly fee to get access to the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. I've now compiled six episodes. I've done two different three-part series, one all about the three macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat, and another three-part series all about keto and ketosis and the ketogenic diet really proud of the work that went into that. We had lots of guests contribute. We also have exclusive content, so interviews that have not been heard anywhere else, only on the Balanced Body Radio premium podcast. So it would really mean a lot if you check that out. Again, it's something that I am very proud of. Either way, we're so grateful for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Balanced Body Radio podcast.